Welcome to SkyCast episode 34, a podcast dedicated to all things The 100. I'm Brittany Perlman. And I'm Sarah McCabe. And today we'll be discussing season 6, episode 5, The Gospel of Josephine, which was a <laughs> phenomenal episode of The 100. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I'm going to be honest, I'm getting a little nervous about this season because I've loved every single episode so much. I'm like, how how much longer can they keep this up? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't want to get like lulled into a false sense of security and then get my heart broken. But this so far is like the strongest season of the 100 we've ever seen. I think so. I mean, I will say last season, things started to go wayward after episode five yes. for me. Um, but that said, I didn't love any of the first five episodes as much as I've loved these five episodes. So fingers crossed, but, um, it's off to a damn good start. It's a damn good start. And we are, you know, almost to the halfway point. Got a couple episodes Mm, left. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, We are certainly a third of the way done. Yeah. Which is wild. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so there's a few housekeeping things we wanted to mention up top here. Uh, First, I want to give a shout out to Jacket's Nest 101 on Podbean, who left us a great comment. Um, They said, "Forget to bring up, forgot to bring up the allusion to Samson and Delilah from the Bible with the Jordan and Delilah storyline last episode, which is such a good point." Um, Obviously, if you guys are not familiar with this story, Samson falls in love with Delilah, and then she cuts off his hair, which is the source of all of his strength. And she is, you know, Trixie. Well, um, so says the man who wrote that. Well, okay. <laughs> that is the literal definition yes. of that story. Mm-hmm. And we don't have time to get into all of the semantics of what that could mean. No, but, of course. Um, but that is interesting to think about. First of all, just Delilah, again, is another very biblical name and somebody who is playing with the love interest um, emotions and what they what they think they're getting into um, versus what they're actually getting into. Um, so, yeah, that's a really great point. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Do you have anything to add you want, you want to add to that? No, nope, I, I thought that was a, an excellent point. And I'm actually surprised that we didn't think about well, it. I actually had meant to bring it up. It was, like, on my list of things to talk about. Then there was, like, so, <laughs> so many. many things to talk about. I just, like, you know, guys, there's a lot. <laughs> so thank you again for bringing that up. I really did want to mention it. Um, second, um, on Twitter, at Save the Hosts theorized about why the Primes need to make amends. They said, no one is talking about why Sanctum makes such a big deal about making amends before they, quote, unquote, kill their host. What if it's because they know that if they don't make amends, they will be tormented in their mind about their past in their death because one of them. Because one of them, like, at yeah. one point had this happen to had them. Had this happen, yeah. Um, I do like this theory. I will say I'm leaning a little bit more toward the reason that they have people make amends, or especially the person who's about to become um, a prime, is just because they know that you're like literally dying. I mean, you're basically dying and you won't have a chance to make these amends ever again. So, you know, I want you to like leave this world (laughs) on good terms with people. Yeah. I really like this theory and thank you again for tweeting at us. Uh, We have so much fun interacting with you guys on Twitter. Um, I like this theory because of the implications of what it means of, you know, what we learned this episode about the consciousness being dormant as instead of dead. Um, but I agree with you that I think the making amends is more of a show of contrition um, and, and an opportunity, another opportunity for the primes to placate the people of Sanctum 
into being obedient. Yeah, um, I mean, I I don't think that the hosts or the uh, the primes actually know about what goes on in the hosts' minds because they all seem to be pretty sure that the hosts are dead. And let's just be honest here, guys. Clark's not dead. Yeah. Like, if you want an episode that talks about Clark being dead, we are not the podcast for you because she's not dead. She'll be back in a couple of episodes. Um, but until then, love and Josephine. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, third item on our housekeeping to-do list. You guys gave us so much good stuff this week. Um, I did want to thank uh, Iman for writing in to us at uh, skycastcrew at gmail.com. You know, she gave us such amazing, excellent analysis of this episode as usual, as usual, um, and gave us a lot to think about. Um, we're going to mention some of her insights later in the podcast today, but I just wanted to give you a very warm shout out. And then also a beautiful shout out to the black Kevin Arnold, who left us a five star review on iTunes. So thank you so much. Seriously, we really appreciate Love it. Love it. Um, and that reminds me to remind you all to <laughs> go and rate us on iTunes. Uh, it helps other fans of the hundred find us. It doesn't take very much time. Go do it. Um, and with that, we will now get into the recap. The very <laughs> long recap. We are like dedicated to staying on task today yeah. because we got a lot to talk about. No more tangents. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> but yeah, let's jump in. So Russell and Simone call Kaylee into the banquet hall and they tell her they've recovered her family's mind drives. They also say that they've heard a rumor that she and her family were trying to escape Sanctum when they stole Sky Crew's ship. Kaylee denies this until she discovers that Josephine is alive in Clark's body. It turns out that Kaylee was the one who killed Josephine in her last body, and Josephine is eager to return the favor. She stabs Kaylee with a knife and then flits off to shower while Russell and Simone look on in shock. Yeah, so first up, Russell, Russell is just so fucking creepy. You know, he's essentially holding Kaylee's family hostage in order to get her to confess, which is just kind of Machiavellian um, for someone who, like, supposedly thinks of these people as his family, you know? Like, you know, I don't see Russell as creepy. I see him as sad, maybe a little pathetic, because he's so wrapped up in his own um, idea of himself and the primes. Um, but I think, like, he thinks he's genuine in all the stuff that he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that is the creepy part is just like him thinking that he's being, you know, straightforward. His delusion, it would be harmless if he was not in a position of power, but he's in the ultimate position of power. Um, and he acts as if this is his divine right when it was constructed by himself. (laughs) Um, so I just, you know, there was something really off about him holding on to her family like this and trying to get her to confess at the same time. It was a power play, and I did not appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a power play. I agree with that. Um, But we find out in this scene that Kaylee and her family were running away. Um, Even though she doesn't admit it, it does seem like that is actually the truth. Um, So I guess, you know, why do we think they were doing this? They're one of the privileged members of society, and yet they're trying to escape. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. I don't have a good answer for this because I think this is going to be one of those mysteries that's going to get wrapped up later in this season. Um, But it is a fascinating question. What do you think? Um, I have a couple of thoughts. My first would be that the Nightbloods seem to be running out on this planet and they want to go back to Earth to see if they can, you know 
find more nightbloods there. Um, another thought of mine is that they're scared of either Russell and Simone or scared of Josephine coming back. Like, you know, we find out in the scene too that Josephine and Kaylee had a bit of a, a uh, an altercation <laughs> in Josephine's last life. Um, it sounds like Kaylee is the one who killed Josephine. She pushed her off a cliff, um, but we don't entirely know why. Um, Kaylee does mention that Josephine may have probably did kill someone named Isaac, who Kaylee cared about. Mm-hmm. Um, why? I mean, like, who do you think this Isaac person is? Well, it's funny because I've been seeing a bunch of people on um, social media just assume that he's her significant other. Like, they keep referring to him as her significant other, which was my, my first instinct as mm-hmm. well. But I think we need to be careful because I don't think we know that for sure, uh, but I do think it's somebody. It's I think it's very likely that it was like someone she was romantically involved with. Yeah. Um, we also theorized it could be a child of hers, yeah. but I feel I feel like that would be uh, like I mean obviously if Josephine killed her child, like Josephine would have to die. You know, I mean like yeah. not that Josephine should be allowed to kill her significant other, but like the bond between mother and child is so strong that it's like I I can't imagine her not you know freaking out and everyone knowing it you know yeah well there's also this question of like what was Isaac doing in the offering grove and that suggests that he has like some sort of agency of his own that a child may not possess um and you know because Kaylee's arguing with her like he would never go there himself he would never sacrifice himself and I don't think they would ask children to sacrifice themselves so that suggests to me that he's an adult at least um I don't know what he means to Kaylee, but it's obvious it's something incredibly important. Otherwise, she wouldn't have pushed your best friend off the cliff. <laughs> I mean, I, I also wonder, like, this quote-unquote best friend thing, like, are they really best friends or are they more of, like, frenemies? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. I mean, if there was any doubt whether Josephine was a psychopath or not, I mean, slicing open your quote-unquote best friend's throat without any hint of concern or remorse just, like, pretty much proved it. Oh, yeah. She's a- She's a full-on psychopath. Um, I mean, I am super curious about why um, Josephine would have killed Isaac. Like, I'm curious what Isaac not only meant to Kaylee, but what he meant to Josephine and why... Yeah, threat he posed. Yeah, like, I I kind of wonder if he might have had something to do with the, the breeding program as well uh we we find about that i find out about this later on in the episode yeah. um but that's the only thing i can think of that we know about yet that like josephine was involved in and cared about that other people seemed to question yeah <laughs> the first thing <laughs> finally someone was like red flag <laughs> <laughs> but i yeah i'm really excited to find out this mystery because it very clearly i'm sure will be answered pretty soon yeah absolutely um i did really love Josephine's little like princess skip over Kaylee's dead body I mean like it it really does say pretty much everything you need to know about her yeah it does and it's so on Clark like you know oh yeah it's it like Eliza Taylor does such a good job of giving all of these um behaviors that have nothing to do with Clark even though she's wearing Clark's body like yeah so great yeah I did want to talk about you know Eliza Taylor's portrayal of Josephine in this episode and it's honestly so impressive what she was able to do she modulates her voice she modulates um her like body expressions she modulates her facial like, so yeah she does this weird thing with her mouth where her lips are thinner um and it's like they're slightly parted mm-hmm. all the time what the hell 
Like, how did you think of that, Elise? <laughs> I don't understand. It's get, just get an Emmy. <laughs> we can tell immediately that this is not Clark. And I'm, I just want to give all the props to Eliza Taylor because she did such a great job. She did. Um, and lastly, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Josephine overall. So this is the second scene we're really seeing of her, um, aside from, you know, the little bit we got last episode and then the the original scene of her first body, her first life. Um, how, I mean, how has she changed since the first time we've saw her? Do you think she's changed at all? Um, is she still the same person that she was when, uh, you know, she was in her first body? Yeah, I do. I think she's changed very little. If anything, I think her personality traits have amplified Mm -hmm. over time. Uh, I don't think she seems to have learned or grown in any kind of tangible direction that I can detect, uh... But she does. She seems to be the same kind of self-centered, egotistical, smartass um, with a lot more power and a lot more privilege. So that that's not great to me. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that all of her personality traits have been amplified. I will say that the first version of Josephine we saw that we immediately did, I mean, I immediately did pick up that there was something weird about it. Yeah, I think it did. was from the scene when she... Um, fed a kid like a potentially poisonous Possibly berry poisonous. and then laughed about it um but I you know couldn't quite figure out which direction they were going to take her at that point um but she did in that in that first scene possess this like level of innocence that Josephine doesn't have anymore mm-hmm. um I don't even I don't even mean innocence in a good way I just mean like innocence and naivete yeah just um, like youth. yeah I mean she was she was young and you know impulsive and she still is impulsive but now she's not quote-unquote young anymore no matter what Clark's body looks like um but she she definitely seems to have just kind of those those sociopathic tendencies that she had in her first life have expanded they've manifested by now yeah she is she is like completely lost touch with reality outside of her own life and her own selfish wants yeah and humanity i mean if it's not directly about her she's uninterested yeah yeah so moving on josephine is dancing and painting in her room when russell and simone come in josephine doesn't want to talk about kaylee after all she deserves a few decades on ice but russell then reveals that it's possible there are more nightbloods among sky crew and he and simone want josephine to find out just how many there might be they task Jade as Josephine's new bodyguard and caution Josephine to be careful because if Sky Crew finds out the Primes killed Clark, they will burn this world down just like their last one. Um, so I did want to note, uh, Eliza Taylor mentioned in an interview that she had a really, really hard time with this scene. Like she was really nervous going into it because this is just like the antithesis of everything that Clark is. Her yeah. just like dancing around wildly and um, also it was like the rapping in French she was really nervous about. So the director had everyone on the crew leave the room and he or her, actually I don't remember if it's a guy or a girl, uh, and Eliza just danced around the room by themselves crazily to just like get her comfortable with the scene. And yeah. I just really love that story. I love it too. And you know, I could detect a little bit of discomfort on Eliza's part in this scene when she was dancing around and, and rapping in French. I mean, all complete props to, Eli- uh, to, to Eliza Taylor. Like I'm not dissing her performance at all, but she usually is like so pitch perfect that there was something just like a little bit reserved about this performance that I was picking up on. And so that makes a lot of sense Mm -hmm. to me. 
Um, also just wanted to quickly shout out that the way that they do Josephine's makeup versus Clark's makeup, I, I honestly could not tell you what the difference is, but it's there. Well, I think Clark doesn't really, I mean, like, obviously she wears makeup, like the actress, but they make it look like she's not. Whereas Josephine, they make it look like she is. She's like very fresh faced. She's like made up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I just love that difference. Like her, even like the way, like her face looks is different. Mm-hmm. But it's the same actress. <laughs> um, but yeah, okay, so let's get into this. Holy shit, what a twist. This is not ha- Happy Clark that we assumed from the trailer. It's fucking Josephine painting a portrait of her first self, like a true megalomaniac. I mean, at least it answers that question. Why is Clark painting a picture of this rando? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, we couldn't decide if this was like herself or, or who is she painting? Or Harper or yeah, some like, other person. What? what yeah. it, no, it's worse. It's worse. <laughs> it is a self-portrait. Passion, it's worse than you thought. <laughs> Um, it really was a weird moment of disconnect to see Russell and Simone watching Josephine like dance around and sing fondly. Like they're watching her and they're like, oh, our daughter. Yeah. Well, we're on the other side of the TV being like, oh my gosh, this girl is a psychopath, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it just kind of like is another um, example of like how delusional they are and how comfortable they are in their delusion, Mm -hmm. you know, because they can look at this and not see all of the humongous problems that are like blinking red lights. (laughs) And they're just like, oh, my daughter, she's back. She's beautiful. She's free. She's happy. And it's like, you birthed a psychopath. <laughs> like, I mean, like at this point, you kind of are—they're all of you are psychopaths, but, but like various degrees. <laughs> um, so I guess getting into the meat of the scene. As I said last episode, I really do think it's truly ridiculous that they haven't found out that, like, apparently all you need to become a nightblood is to have a bone marrow transplant. Um, like they they themselves were artificially made into nightblood so they know that it's possible um and it just doesn't make sense to me that they wouldn't have tried to recreate that over the years yeah i 100% agree with you it feels very contrived for the sake of this season um the fact that they haven't figured it out yet and that you know like we see the light bulb click when murphy lets the cat out of the yeah. bag later this episode um you know what we're just going to like, well, the <laughs> only reason I can think of that maybe they did it is because they were worried about experimenting on nightbloods because, you know, they needed them so right. much. They didn't um, want to risk. I mean, I think that's kind of a weak explanation, but it's just a very odd choice the writers made for it me. Also is, I mean, we know that their population of nightbloods was at one point much larger than it is now. So I don't feel like they were probably like as precious to them in the yeah. beginning as they are now. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and so Josephine is into eugenics, apparently, which is real gross. Yeah. Um, she started a breeding program, or at least proposed one, but maybe wasn't allowed to run it. I was a little bit unclear about how that kind of settled out. Yeah, it doesn't sound like it ever got off the ground. I think it's possible it did, but like Russell maybe put a stop to it. I'm not sure. He does use the word oblation in reference to the breeding program and oblation is basically an offering to a god um so do we think that the offering grove has anything to do with you know like maybe if you know kids they have weren't nightbloods they would like just give them away to the trees or whatever they do yeah it's such a good question um i have no idea but this offering grove and oblation plus the breeding program it doesn't sound good. No, I mean, and my question is too, 
if they did this breeding program, do you think that they were like forcing night bloods to have babies with each other or were they growing babies in labs and then killing the ones who didn't have night blood? Yeah, I'm not sure. It's it sounds like a breeding program pretty much implies they were forcing people to have well, I mean, they could have bred people as in, like, taken the eggs from one night blood and the sperm from another night blood. I guess blood that's and, true. You know, uh, bred them together and, in, in, like, in a lab in condition. A lab. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think that would be more controllable than the other alternative. Yeah. Uh, but either way, it's not good. No. <laughs> Eugenics, guys. Let's not, let's, <laughs> Let, not, let's not do that. Let's not do that. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to mention just, you know, it's very clear that Josephine could not be less interested in, like, the cult aspects of this society that Russell is so um, obsessed with, um, and probably because, you know, he created it and is now put himself in charge, <laughs> um, and that, you know, she she doesn't care about the idea of consent at all. Like, this is not an, an, a moral issue for her in the same way that uh, Russell feels or at least obligated to feel bad about the morality in which they are murdering people. Um, and, you know, it's just so fascinating how she's, like, cut through all the bullshit. You know, she's like, I, we are not good. We are murderers. Let's just own it. This is what we're doing. This is what we need. And I don't want to, like, play along and do all this pretense about it. Like, I just want to get a, I just want to get on with the murder. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think Russell truly believes that the people that they're taking are consenting now that's how he's like created his utopia and yeah. is able to not feel bad about it sure um you know the question is and we get you know josephine kind of mentioning this a little bit later on in the episode is like what is consent like if you go willingly without knowing all of the answers um is it consent i right. don't think so and well and then gaia brings up a really interesting point which we'll get into later which is like what do you what does it mean to be consensual if you've been brainwashed over multiple decades to believe mm -hmm. this is like a divine thing instead of a scientific thing anyway we'll get into that later. yeah um, um sure. i i will say when russell reveals that there may be more nightbloods among sky crew there is this moment josephine's facing away from them this like weird expression comes up on her face that's like almost fear and then she turns around and seems excited about the prospect yeah um I don't know if that was just, like, maybe an odd acting choice. Like, maybe she was just supposed to look surprised. But she, for me, looked worried. Yeah, I actually thought, I mean, I just kind of assumed that it was about bringing Kaylee back so soon. I thought, you know, for her, she's like, I just got rid of this bitch. <laughs> and now I have to deal with this tomorrow. Yeah, but what's confusing to me is why does Josephine fear Kaylee you know like just I mean I don't think it's because Kaylee killed her no no I think, I think there's a reason yeah I think I think she's trying to keep her quiet about something um but as I, for what that is don't know yeah yeah I agree uh it's totally fascinating that Simone her mother you know she actually threatens to remove Josephine's chip at one point um to make sure that she behaves and you know Simone we've seen is not the type to make false threats um, so do we think she is like a little bit more aware of or sees through Josephine's to her like true nature in a way that Russell seems to have like brushed off all of her behaviors as just like childish antics? I mean, I know she's a centuries old adult, but whatever. So I'm just wondering if you think like Simone is like a little bit more skeptical about or a little bit more worried about the links that Josephine will go to 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think Josephine, or I mean, uh, Simone loves Josephine, but I think Simone is a lot more capable of seeing Josephine's true self yeah. than Russell is. Yeah. I think Russell, again, just like lives in denial about a lot of things, and Josephine's sociopathy is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting that she like actually threatened. Yeah. She's like, I brought you into this world and I can dig you out of it. It was like, <laughs> it was like a very prime way of saying that. It's really funny. And then last but not least, um, the scene ends with uh, Josephine saying, we're spectacular. Um, so apparently the novelty of being immortal has not worn off for her. Still loving it. So like, glad. Wouldn't you get bored? I would get bored. <laughs> But I guess if you're getting a new upgrade, a new body every time, and it's a different experience with, like, different people, maybe. I don't know. I mean, like, she – I think she's, like, endlessly fascinated by humanity because she can't connect to them, which we'll talk about a little bit later. (laughs) But, like, you know, I I think for her it's just, like, all one giant experiment that she's conducting. Yeah. So Jordan finds and offers Priya uh, a bouquet of daisies, her favorite, which she accepts. But as he tells Bellamy and Murphy later on, Delilah's favorite flower was a calla lily. Jordan is sure something is wrong with Delilah slash Priya, but Bellamy and Murphy brush him off. Josephine comes in pretending to be Clark and immediately fall or fails when she suddenly allows Maddie to go to school after denying Maddie last episode. Bellamy is surprised at seeing Josephine so carefree, but chalks it up to Clark's new relationship with Killian. Then Josephine drops off Maddie at school and tries to figure out the roots of the Trigetta slang language that Sky Crew speaks. Jordan interrogates Blythean about what happened to Delilah, and Bellamy pushes him away, but Jordan can't let it go. And I just want to say, um, before we jump into this, that I am going to be calling her Josephine this episode. It was like kind of difficult to to navigate the like Josephine Clark of it all because they obviously think she's Clark but she's Josephine I'm just gonna call her Josephine yeah I think it's fair to just call her Josephine that's who she is yeah yeah um I know we've been saying this a lot uh for several actors but I did just want to call out um Ashley Lathrop who's playing Delilah Priya um because she's doing an incredible job this is like a completely different person than Delilah um and you know she has this like maternal sensibility about her just like an, an an elder if you will um that you know was so contrasted from Priya's just pure innocence um you mean Delilah's pure yeah innocence, Delilah's yeah. pure innocence um and she's doing a fantastic job and I just wanted to name her because yeah she's so great I think that actress just has a lot of charisma um I'm always drawn to her in the scenes that she's in yeah. no matter who she's playing Priya or Delilah yeah so um I hope we still see more of her I'm not sure how the Priya Delilah storyline is supposed to play out this season yeah well hopefully she's not lost hopefully uh but jordan he is coming out of the gate strong like i'm super impressed he's very naive but also very smart i mean he is monty's son that's so true he is he's got the he's got the chops he's just immediately like cutting out the bullshit and is like what is going on yeah and it's really nice that the show is like allows him to be the vehicle to do this you know like it's not enough for the show to just be like okay we're gonna speed up the pacing of the season and really like not waste any time here but mm-hmm. then and also to give it to Jordan who's this like brand new character who we're like just trying to figure out and like give him a win out the gate is really a, a really good thing yeah um also Murphy should not be counseling anyone about relationship advice like 
it's a tough look there for you, buddy. Like, I know Murphy got dumped sometime in between seasons four and five. Uh, but I don't feel like he ever, like, made up for the reasons that he got dumped. They just kind of, like, pushed us to the side and he was back together with the Mori. Also, like... I don't know if you remember Murphy, but when you met Amori, you were like the most lovesick puppy of lovesick pu- Like you guys were like married in like two seconds. So <laughs> I don't know who you think you're talking about when you're like, play it cool, buddy. Like who who do you think you are? Anyway, it was just hilarious to me. Um, Jordan does call the room with the, the skeletons where they took Delilah the reliquary, which basically means like a place that you store holy relics. I mean, it's usually not, I think it's usually like a box or something, not like a room. Um, so I thought well, that was kind a of a very big box. Yes. I th- <laughs> yeah. I thought it was an interesting um, thing to call it. And, you know, my question is, do we think they ever allow the like layman of this, of the sanctum place to go in and like look at these skeletons or is it just for primes? I think it's just for primes. I don't think they let the layman in there because I think they like to continue the the mysticism of this ritual. I would have agreed, except for this episode, we discover that the lab is hidden behind a secret door. Um, and there doesn't seem to be a reason that that would need to be a secret unless they allow like normal people in to like look at these skeletons yeah um so maybe they like take field trips in here <laughs> and tour yeah <laughs> give little to, like, tours show the 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 um development of the primes over the last 200 years so i think it's like a controlled allowance of letting people in maybe i, I mean that would be cool sick but cool. <laughs> um yeah okay so another thing in this scene is they reference the play godot Josephine says that she plays she's played Vladimir before and so playing Clark should Clark should be not be a big deal um I gotta be honest with you guys I don't love waiting for Godot it's not my favorite of the plays Um, I've seen it once don't remember a single thing about it so I've had Brit kind of take over this (laughs) I read it and I've seen it I still don't like it but I do like what this reference says and, and the kind of what we can draw from it. I mean, Waiting for Godot was written in a in, in England after World War II. It's a post-apocalyptic play about, you know, the question of faith um, and believing, which is obviously very relevant to this show. And the character of Vladimir is actually the more uh, faithful and believer of the... There's two characters. One is Vladimir, one is Estragon. And Estragon is this very cynical kind of, you know, question-seeking character who is constantly, you know, trying to get Vlad to admit that Godot is not coming. Uh, there is no Godot, or God, you know, <laughs> if you want to just cut out the O-T. And, um, you know, Vladimir is the one who's, you know, constantly reassuring him, no, there is, Godot is coming, he is he is going to show up, you know, he is so faith-filled. So I think it's really fascinating that a, Josephine played this character, which seems very uh, antithetical to everything that she stands for. Um, and also just like what this says about the show in general. I mean, I think there are a lot of similar themes that we can pull out here. Um, and I always love a good literary reference. It's really good. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why she brought it up is saying like, I played this like believer character, which was really hard for yeah, me. So tough. Clark should be easy. Oh, girl. <laughs> Um, how much do you think Josephine knows about Sky Crew and, and Clark um, heading into this? I I mean, I would suspect that, that Russell and Simone told her everything that Monty, I mean, Monty, I'm going to do that a lot, Jordan, <laughs> Jordan told them. But I mean, that's 
one millionth of what makes up Clark as a person. Mm-hmm. So not enough. Yeah, I mean, she, I, I kind of, like, envision them in her room, like, holding up flashcards yeah. of, like, faces. And yeah, like, you know, like a spy mission. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think she's uh, bound to find out that she does not know as much as she thinks she knows. No. Uh, and this is the first time, too, that Josephine hears Trig, Trigetta Slang. Uh, and Clark understands Trigetta Slang, obviously, but Josephine doesn't. So it is immediately clear that this is going to be a problem for her in this episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also wanted to call out, you know, it's it's more apparent in this scene than any of the prior ones um, how clinical Josephine's body language is. And by that, I mean she looks at the Sky Crew team like they're just another species for her to categorize and interrogate. You know, she does the psychopath head tilt. There is a sense of curiosity about her, but in a scientific sense, like she's not actually interested in them humanly. Um, she's just interested in, in, you know, solving this puzzle that they present to her. Um, and it's very creepy uh, <laughs> what Eliza does with her body. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I did want to note that, like, we know that Clark is Maddie's, like, surrogate mother of sorts. But it really felt apparent to me in this scene because Clark quote-unquote Clark gets to make all of the decisions about Maddie and Maddie's life like Gaia doesn't really have a voice Maddie herself I mean she can you know protest but Clark's rule rules basically yeah and um, she's the mom I mean so I'm just saying it was an interesting way that they've kind of developed from Maddie being a very uh independent child when Clark first met her to now Maddie kind of looking to her like you know you are my parent what you say goes yeah um I, I like I know that that's kind of how they were set up but it was just kind of an interesting dynamic in this scene specifically that made me take notice of it yeah absolutely and I think you know when it was just the two of them like Maddie's independence was fine <laughs> um but now that they're in a society they don't know the rules there's all this danger we you know Gaia discovers that Maddie's a nightblood. There are all these constraints that go along with it. You know, like, I think Clark had given Maddie a lot of freedom that she has slowly restricted (laughs) as these, you know, as they've encountered all of these things. Um, And Maddie herself, you know, she rebels occasionally, but I think she feels like Clark has a much better sense of what's going on and allows herself to be reined in a a little bit. Well, also, I think she thinks of Clark like her mom. Yeah, of course she does. I mean, like... You know, you tend to listen to your mom. She can be scary. (laughs) Oh, man. Also, and let's get into this. I just, Bellamy's look of shock when Josephine is snarky about Killian is priceless. I think I was detecting a sense of, a little hint of jealousy, but I think that was just me. I don't know if I would go as far as saying jealousy, but he was definitely flustered. Yeah, caught off guard. <laughs> <laughs> like, there was a moment he was like, excuse me? Like, who, who are you and what have you done with Clark? <laughs> Literally. Um, yeah, I, you know, I've, I've loved the way, and we'll continue to love in this episode, the way that Bellark is interacting this season. Um, Bellark, or in this, you know, Bellamy assuming it's Bellark. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, they've just had such a great connection this season and it keeps growing. And I, I love this scene and this episode with Bellamy. Like, we see that he really does know Clark. And whenever she acts out of character, he's like not quite sure what to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it's like dis- it's disconcerting to him because it's yeah. like something that he takes for granted that it's like a, sh- a certainty. And every time she surprises him, he's like, I have to now like recalibrate all my whole reality around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I really, really love, I should have tacked this on to the, the Maddie Clark Gaia thing, but I love Maddie's just like, I love you, Clark, as she goes off to school. It was so sweet and so familial. And I just, we haven't, I don't know if we've ever actually heard her say that. I don't think we have. We might have when they were like saying goodbye at the end of last season. Oh yeah, maybe. maybe. Um, but it was just, I don't know. It was a really sweet moment and I loved it. And I I wish it wasn't wasted on Josephine. But it was, and it's also, it's like a throwaway, right? It's just like, you know, it's, it's not full of all of this import like the end of the world we don't know if we're going to see each other again of course you're going to say love you mm-hmm. but it's just so casual and sweet and you know just like I'm going to school love you bye you know mm-hmm. it's very sweet <laughs> um also wanted to call out this is a great scene for Gaia I love the way that she interprets their religion um and the way that she recognizes the value of faith I mean it's wrong she's wrong but I appreciate that she's able to keep an open mind about it and relate to them in a way that the other characters don't. I think it's important to have that other's perspective. And I just, you know, the way her mind works is different and interesting. Well, I, I think you're when you're saying she's wrong, I think you just mean like in terms of this specific faith. She's yes. not wrong about, you know, that faith is important to a lot of people and it should be respected. Oh, yes. No, um, no. Yeah. I should clarify. I was, I was specifically talking about this specific yeah. faith and the fact that it's not really a faith but a cult but but really though like are these people just super religious or are they like drugged in some way i just cannot get past this idea that you know like Blythan is so brainwashed that she's like oh my daughter is gone it's fine you I know? know it just is so it goes against everything we think about like the maternal instinct which is like in deeply ingrained in our dna Mm-hmm. Um, and it feels like that should be stronger than, you know, centuries old brainwashing. I don't understand how she's just like, la-di-da, my, ba- my daughter said, look, Priya has a seventh life. No problem. I, 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 I feel like there has to be a drug. I don't know. I'm like moving away from the drug aspect because I feel like if the show was going to do that, they would have like dropped a few more hints like physical hints of like them drinking something or them like offering something to sky crew you know what i mean yeah um so i'm i'm now kind of leaning more toward i guess they really just are that brainwashed and it's hard to put you know your feet in their shoes because it's such a wildly different upbringing than either of us had that you know i I can't imagine feeling like my faith is more important than my daughter's life you know yeah i mean Again, I just, like, have a really hard time believing that the maternal instinct doesn't kick in at some point, yeah. but I don't know. I don't know. Um, also, last thing, I know I know Jordan is, like, in his teenage rebellious stage here, and he's, like, telling Bellamy, like, I don't need you to take care of me. I can take care of myself. But, like, seriously, can you? Can you? <laughs> you're, like, a newborn child. Yeah, you're, like, a fawn. <laughs> you're, like, a doe. Like, <laughs> like you're like a baby giraffe I, I just like you have no idea how to navigate this kind of comp- zero survival skills yes zilch love um, you jordan think you're very smart but oh my god that was hilarious i was like oh you poor sweet teenage boy 
uh, Octavia and Dioza, to switch scenes here, are changing Xavier, or changing, they're chasing Xavier through the forest on their motorcycles, but they soon have to abandon the bikes to keep following him. Xavier leads them right into a pit filled with what seems to resemble quicksand, or goo, as I'm going to call it, uh, and Octavia and Dioza get stuck. Just to be clear, I did try and get her to call it the pit of despair, but she... I did call it the pit at one point. The pit of despair. Yeah, so um, <laughs> that's what I want to call it, but she she opted not to. It's too long. Goo is much shorter. That's fair. <laughs> um, I do think it's it weren't saying for the millionth time, but I just love how smart Diosa is. Like, I love that she can evaluate. She's like pregnant, running through a forest, can evaluate her opponent's moves, and then recognizes what's happening and then decides to play along with it because it ultimately serves the purpose that she's trying to get to. Like, she's just, like, so many steps and moves ahead of him. Like, my God, she's so good at this. I mean, we said we weren't going to repeat ourselves, but I'm going to repeat myself every episode when I say Dioza is a gift. It's the only good thing to come out of season five, in my opinion. (laughs) I will never let this go. I want her to be on this show forever. Yeah, yeah. She's too good. She's a perfect perfect present that they gave us um also xavier says that they call this pit the crucible um which obviously is meant to imply that gabriel named it as we learned it's his favorite play last episode but also what a great metaphor for the emotional transformation that this forces on octavia and dioza i see what they did there yeah it's (laughs) so great and i mean i want to call this up a little bit later too just um the connection possibly between Xavier and Gabriel that Xavier knows what a crucible is and it's probably because of the play (laughs) yeah yeah also if you guys don't know the like literal meaning of a crucible is not the play but it's a it's a a tool used in alchemy to transform metals into gold Mm -hmm. um the crucible well it's actually even less than that it's just a it's just a device used in science to to like burn things and transform something into something else else it's a bowl it's a bowl (laughs) and it's 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 like a hot bowl yeah Uh, that's what a crucible is (laughs) a hot bowl it's a hot bowl (laughs) uh jackson and abby are arguing about the fact that abby seems to have replaced drugs with her obsession about saving kane josephine comes in pretending to be clark and tries to help abby with her research but abby quickly notices that josephine is writing with her right hand whereas clark is lefty to cover josephine shows her a bug in one of the books that might be able to help in kane's surgery and abby distractedly goes back to work so i'm wondering if the writers just didn't know what to do with abby for this stretch of episodes and they knew that they needed to bake in some kind of plot suspense and abby be or reverting back to a kind of an unreliable and easily manipulated version of herself was like the easiest route for them to take here that's like the only thing i can think of i have no reason i have no idea why what other reason they could have decided that this was important for her character growth yeah i'm having a really hard time with this plot line being that i i hate every single thing about it um (laughs) and it's not just just because of that it's not necessarily just because i don't want kane to come back even though i don't um but it feels like at this point that's all abby is is her like relationship with kane and like i like i get this i guess on a logical sense of like obviously she's going to want to save Kane this season, but I just, number one, don't want to watch it. And number two, I, 
I'm not sure Abby has much of a role left on the show. You know, Jackson can be the doctor, Clark and Bellamy are the leaders. Like, I, I just don't see Abby's importance anymore. I mean, except from the fact that she is Clark's mother, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I, I think that they're just like stringing Abby along because they can't kill her because that would really affect Clark, but they also don't know what to do with her. So, yep. I totally agree with you. Um, but moving on from that. So Josephine wrote a book called Oblation by and for the grace of the primes. Like what an asshole first off. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this book is apparently propaganda on a eugenics project, which is, you know, basically purifying the bloodline. Uh, and we see Abby here called Josephine a monster to her face, even though Abby doesn't realize it. Yeah. And I, I loved this little moment of just insight into the person that Josephine was in a previous life and, and you're, we're able to kind of like see those same um, aspects here in her, her newest life. Yeah, I also love that like under her breath, Josephine was like, or visionary, <laughs> which is interesting because The 100 has used the word visionary to describe several other antagonists on The 100, including Dante and Lexa. Um, Have they? Yeah, they did. I'm going to believe you. Uh, I think that saying I'm a visionary is something that a monster would say. Yes. I mean, like, it's, I don't think, no, it wasn't self, self-described by Dante or Lexa. Okay. Or maybe it was by Dante. I was going to say, Lexa does not seem um, like, yeah. And uh, Josephine being like, I'm a visionary. is like, also like, she's like, I'm spectacular. Yeah. <laughs> like, she's also very amusing. Um, I did want to use this opportunity to um, call out a piece of Iman's email that she sent into us and because I just thought it was really beautiful way of talking about uh, this eugenics thing and um, she brought up a really really good point so I'm going to read this little bit from her she wrote in her her being Josephine Josephine's monstrous eugenics plan tells us a lot about her hubris her burning desire to transcend humanity I'm laughing at this the point where Josie was like you know, and then she goes on and on about this Prometheus, um, you know, allegory. Um, but basically, I love this idea that um, we see Josephine as like, you know, she thinks of herself as like a mythological literary figure and she's competing with God and they're going to see their empires and themselves fall down. You know, Russell had said if they discover we kill Clark, they will burn something to the ground um, because we take this as real foreshadowing to the end of six, the end of season six um, season. So I know that was like a lot of mumbo jumbo because I was paraphrasing a lot, but there's a lot in here that I really loved about Josephine's, you know, hubris and the idea of making herself into some kind of God where she can decide who lives and who dies. Um, it's really, really good point. Um, and we've seen, you know, char- mythical characters like this in literature time and time again, where they raise themselves up to a level of a god only to fall on their own petard, to <laughs> borrow from Shakespeare. Um, and we know, we know this is going to happen. So. Yeah, I mean, Josephine is heading for a reckoning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So thank you, Amon, for sending that in. I'm sorry I butchered it. There's just you go on in so many amazing points here. But I'm trying to paraphrase. Yeah. Uh I particularly, and I know we might disagree with that, this, I am doubtful that Abby would recognize that Clark was writing with her wrong hand, um, especially with Abby's current state of just, like, manic obsession. Um, I, I That really, like, stood out to me personally as feeling like I could see the writer's uh, hands in this scene. 
Yeah, I can. I sort of totally see what you're saying. <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> where you, it kind of felt forced. Um, for me, like I, that's just like one of the weird things that I would notice. Like that didn't seem odd to me. What did seem odd to me was like Josephine was like, "Oh, look at this book," and then Abby just dropped it. Um, well, that made sense to me because again, Abby is like so obsessed with this idea right now, which is like why I was surprised that she took the time to notice that Clark was writing with her wrong hand. Yeah, well, I think what. I think what's supposed to be, I think the mechanics of this scene is that they're trying to show that Abby is this like manic obsessive person right now, but her maternal instincts for Clark are the only thing that can break her out of it. Mm -hmm. And they used Clark writing with the wrong hand as to demonstrate that. I think it stretches credibility to your point, but I do think that's what they're trying to show. And then the minute that Josephine is like, oh, look at this book over here, you know, her attention is turned away again and she loses sight of what her her instincts are telling her. Yeah. Um, which I think is a very generous interpretation. I will admit that. But I think that's what the writers were trying to do. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with that. Uh, just saying I would never notice. You can write with the wrong hand as much as you want because I would not I pay would attention. I would notice if you wrote with a different hand. <laughs> that is not how I'd tell that you were taken over by someone else. <laughs> well, no. But I would notice. <laughs> Um, Abby does though she like almost wants to say something to Clark as as Clark or you know Josephine is walking out of the room but then she just kind of like shakes her head and like you know goes back to her work yeah um so yeah like I, I do you know like that Abby is noticing that something is different but just isn't able to like put her full capacity of focus on that right now yeah and I mean that's I think that's another uh, you know c- contravince uh, is that how you say that word what are you trying Contrivance to say? of this episode yeah. is that they needed Abby distracted. Otherwise, she would be able to figure this out in seconds because yeah. it's her daughter. So I understand why they wanted to, like, distract her. I just, like, I'm so bored by this. It's very annoying. Yeah. So Bellamy and Murphy are poring over a map of Sanctum and the surrounding area. Apparently, the people of this planet never ventured any further than this kind of one little plot of land. Murphy doesn't want to explore potentially dangerous areas, but Bellamy wants them to find a safe place where they can start their own society. Murphy realizes that he hasn't seen Jordan in a while, and Bellamy has an idea of where he might be. Murphy reluctantly follows. So for me, uh, as like a big fan of Star Trek, you know, exploration, go where no man slash woman has gone before, um, I'm really excited by this idea that there is so much of this moon I guess um, that hasn't been explored yet and I am hoping that we'll get to see a little bit more of these unexplored areas and you know maybe discover new things like I'm not sure how this season is going to end up but I personally would kind of like it if our heroes left Sanctum and went and like built their own society somewhere else yeah I think that is a really great point and you know I wish that they had explored more of Earth while they were on it, you yeah. know, there was very much, you know, restricted to Vancouver, um, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and not that they've changed locations for this moon, <laughs> but I did feel like we were, you know, there's like this big wide world out there and, you know, they're having like all these political, you know, fights over territory. And I'm like, you have the entire United States, like just, you have the entirety of North and South America right, because they're like, connected. Just move like 60 miles east, like west. 
please. Yeah, I did always miss the fact that we didn't get to see that there's certainly other kinds of grounder societies out there. We did know for sure that there were grounders in Egypt because we saw them being burned alive. Yes, we did. <laughs> but, but it was sad that we never got to see more uh, cultures. But, you know, yeah. too late. <laughs> um, but maybe we can do it on this new moon. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it is a smart plan, in my opinion, from Bellamy. Like, I wasn't sure how they were going to kind of reconcile this idea that they need to figure out how to live, but they also have 400 criminals on their ship that, like, let's be real, Sanctum is never allowing in here. Yeah. Um, so it's smart from Bellamy to, like, say, we'll learn how to survive from the primes, but then Raven will build this radiation shield somewhere else, and we'll just move away, and we can each live our own, like, peaceful societies separate from each other. Um, I hadn't really thought about that at this point, so. Yeah, it's a really good plan. I think it's optimistic. <laughs> um, foolishly optimistic, but. It's a Bellamy 2.0 move, not a Bellamy 3.0, but. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, Murphy talks about the cave systems, that Sanctum was built on top of the system of caves. And we haven't seen these caves yet, but, like, question, like, are we going to see these caves in this season? Is I, this going to play a role? I mean, I think it has to. I think just in the sense of it being, like, a really interesting callback to season two with the cave systems for the mountain men. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like they've got to. Right? I mean, there's a reason they brought this up. I don't really know how the caves are going to play a role. I don't know what their importance is. Um, but I'm really excited to find out because I don't think that they would have brought them up otherwise. No, I, I, I can't wait to see what happens. It's going to be so cool. Um, all right. Let's get into some philo- philosophy here. I, I wanted to bring this up because Bellamy seems to take it for granted that they have to wake up the 400 criminals in cryo on the ship and bring them into their new society. That's just like a given for him. Mm -hmm. And my question is, are they obligated to wake them up and care for them and provide for them? Like what are the moral implications if they don't? And what are the moral implications if they do? I mean, they're putting their own people at risk for these criminals. But on the other side, like you can't just like leave a bunch of people on ice forever. What? I don't know where I land on this. I think that where I land as, like, a person might be different than where I'd land if I was a person who had been through everything that they'd been through. Right now, like, as just a regular person, I'm like, I wouldn't want a bunch of, like, rapists and murderers, you know, to be in our society. Like, to basically, like, they're the entire society because Sky Crew is very little yeah, sect of, like them. of them. Yeah, of them. Of course, at the same time, like, most slash all of our characters except Jordan are murderers not rapists for the record that we know of um so it's like where is the moral line like do these characters have a right to judge the quote-unquote criminals in the ship um when they themselves have done horrible things yes and might not know the context of what these people these 400 criminals did themselves and why I think that's a really good way of putting it um but my other point, my counterpoint to that, and I, I do agree with you, is, you know, I think, you know, knowing the Sky Crew people um, mm-hmm. and what they're capable of, even if they, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a question of judgment and or if a question of safety and security, because 400 criminals, I mean... That's a serious security threat. Yeah. And I don't know if, you know, that 
is a wise move. Yeah, we, we saw these people yeah. um, in the village last season just being like a bunch of criminals, honestly, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, and I actually do think as well that maybe Bellamy has a different idea about what they need to do about these people than some of the other people in Sky Crew. Like Murphy, I can see it on his face, does not care about those people oh, at all. Not. He's like, Bellamy's like, remember, we have those 400 people. And Murphy's like, mm, do we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, that's kind of what prompted me to do this is like, like Bellamy seems like so certain. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it is a question. Like, you can decide. This is not, you know, an already foregone conclusion, Bellamy. My idea of what they should do to them, and this is probably not morally okay, but I feel like they should just send them back to Earth and, like, set them to wake up in, like, 150 years, and then they can all just live on the ship, you know? (laughs) I would send them... Or, hey, maybe Earth has regrown itself at this point. I was going to say, why don't we just send them to the next planet? They can deal with it. The one that's even possibly less hospitable than this one? (laughs) Yeah. Mission number five or whatever Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I don't know. I am worried about this, but I think that Bellamy now is so dedicated, and probably Clark as well, dedicated to the idea of, like, doing better. Um, And I'm wondering how much the other characters are dedicated to this idea. At least, you know, as far as these 400 criminals go. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, But lastly, we do find out that the Offering Grove is where they have funerals. Like um, Blythan says that they're going to lay Rose to rest or give Rose to the trees or something um, in the Offering Grove. So I'm trying to figure out, like, is this just the place where they bury their dead? Or is this a place where they do, like, actual sacrifices? Ritual sacrifices. Yeah, I mean, honestly, though. No, no, I'm laughing because it's so absurd that we're actually using this in, like, a literal sense. But that is... But that is the question. Yeah. Um, I really want to see this whole, like, giving a body to the trees, though. Like, do the trees just move and, like, suck it in? We saw this in a trailer, We saw right? it in a promo of next episode. There was, like, a guy who had, like, a bunch of, um, uh, like, roots yeah, or roots. plants or something, you know, kind of tied up around him. But I want to see, like, how fast does this happen? Oh, you yeah. Know? No, I can't wait to see how this actually works. Yeah. Um, it is a good question, though. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they repurposed it after Josephine's experiment. They were like, <laughs> they were like, I don't think this is a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> so Josephine sees Murphy and Bellamy sneaking into the palace and follows them. Murphy and Bellamy discover the room full of skeletons, and Jordan's already inside, looking for clues about Delilah's transformation. Gaia enters moments behind them to seek out why this culture also, 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 also worships Nightbloods. Josephine enters and tries to get them to leave, but they disregard her. Gaia realizes that all of the skeletons in the room have a flame mark on their skull, and Jordan discovers a hidden door in the wall that opens into a secret lab. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, bum, bum. You know, like father, like son, I love that Jordan jailbreaks his way into the palace. Like, it's so great. Yeah, it is. Um... Also, I have to call this out because the loudest, like, screaming megaphone of all meta commentary happened in this scene. Um, Jordan told Bellamy he preferred the Bellamy before Prime Baya, (laughs) heart overhead. That was his favorite Bellamy. It was a blinking, screaming, like, 
you know, PSA from the writers. Like, we hear you. We get it. <laughs> like, it would have felt really cheesy and odd to me if not for the fact that I agree with this so deeply. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like everybody is on Jordan's side here. Like, that's true. We do. We love that Bellamy. I mean, again, Bellamy now, more healthy. So Bellamy great. then, more interesting. <laughs> so great. Um but I did love that the writers were just like, yes, that was our favorite Bellamy too. We hear you. But like, but they've been like, they've been backpedaling they a little bit they've, this they've season. They've been integrating in a really, yeah. really great way. Like no, no diss on season six Bellamy. Yeah. Um, Bellamy does note here that he's seeing the, all these skeletons around him and he notices that they took kids on the original mission, uh, which he already should have known because they they have photos of the original primes like everywhere. Yeah. And there were quite a few kids there. Um, but he mentions it anyway. So I'm guessing he clearly is seeing here that many of these original primes died young. Um, so part of this I'm, I'm sure is because, you know, Russell killed them as kids, uh, (laughs) like for the first time around. Yes. But then... And I was having a hard time seeing, like, all of the different rows of skeletons. But I think that some of the earlier um, primes that Russell tried to make were also children. And that's why, you know, they were they rejected the, the flame. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering if he used those skeletons in this, you know, in this body or in this, like, body of skeletons themselves. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Like, did he use the skeletons of the people that he tried and failed to make a prime? Or did he just use the skeletons of the primes in making this, like, sanctuary? So this is a really interesting question because Josephine at one point asks, you know, when she's resurrected, like, is it real this time? Which makes Mm -hmm. me think that it could have worked and then failed. Yeah, I was I was going to talk about that later. Yeah, but we'll talk about it later. My question, I guess we can just talk about it now, is the question is, like, how many times did she wake up in someone else's body before... It stuck. It stuck. Well, right. And then if you do wake up in someone else's body, like, for example, a child who's 13 or 14, mm-hmm. um, and you're lucid for even several minutes, I mean, like, technically, I guess that would still count, right? I would think so. so I did. That's I maybe, did find that's it. What I'm thinking is like maybe those are the skeletons they're using in these rows. It was surprising to me if she had woken up in someone else's body before and then it didn't stick. Um, why her first thoughts waking up this time would have been Russell killing her. Like maybe when she woke up, quote unquote, woke up in these like earlier iterations of the the children primes, um, she wasn't really able to like figure out this was reality it was like more dreamlike to her um because of the children's undeveloped mind so like maybe she does she again doesn't feel like anything was real until before until like you know when her father killed her to now like yeah everything between there was just a dream lucid yeah um yes i don't know so (laughs) yeah no but that's what kind of where i was going with this is like if if she has been awake using that term loosely mm-hmm. um in ch- a child's bodies before then maybe those are the skeletons that they've used in these rows of maybe of again stuff. like i couldn't see which skeletons were which and which skeletons were smaller than others it was really yeah, hard, to very hard to tell with the way the camera was kind of focusing but um i i hope that we find a little bit more information or about that maybe it is all the skeletons of the kids that he murdered the first time around Oh, yeah. No, I do think it's that. I think he uses the original skeletons of all the murdered children, Eligius people in the first row uh, or the first like inner circle Uh because all of the skeletons are arranged. There's 12 of them. They're arranged in a circle and then they're like spokes on a wheel. So like 
each person's different bodies are like lined up behind behind them. them. Um, So I'm assuming that like the original children that he killed, their skeletons are in the center of this circle. Okay. Uh, I wonder if Bellamy questions like why these children died so young because he doesn't seem to. He notes that they took kids, but he doesn't say odd that like a lot of these skeletons are children, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, moving on from that rambling little bit there. Um, we see that the infinity symbol in this scene isn't about Becca or about Allegis, like we kind of thought in earlier episodes. Like it does seem like this infinity symbol for this society has become a mark of the primes. Yeah. Uh, because of the, you know, marks on the actual mind drives that yeah. they have. Yeah. Becca, the mother of several dangerous and destructive cults throughout the universe. Like, what an interesting person, Becca, you know? I mean, and she would be so sad to see her, you know, she... I mean, she is sad. She was sad. She was sad. I mean, but to the extent, I mean, there's no way she could have known about this. This would destroy her. I mean, like, just think about if you just removed Becca from the timeline. Yep. None of this would have happened. The world wouldn't have ended. Elegius probably wouldn't have gone on this mission in the first place because it was all Becca's research that allowed them to do yeah, this. But um, so that like, you know, what would the world look like? It might have ended itself otherwise. Like, let's be honest, we're always on the verge of an apocalypse. But uh, Becca really did cause the destruction of the human race yeah. in many ways, you know, in various planets, like, like unintentionally, but still. Yeah. And she would be so sad. Yeah. I'm sad for her. I'm sad for her, too. She was delightful. Um, Murphy is very much down for this, or not down for this, like, snooping around Yeah, no. His self-preservation mode is kicking in. (laughs) Um, Also, just wanted to call out, last thing in this scene, um, there's a subtlety in Josephine's actions here. You know, she is playing this game fairly well. Um, You know, some things she gets blatantly wrong, you know, like the, well, they went willingly. (laughs) But, you know, it's not good enough. And you, you can see that she's starting to raise suspicion in her in her fellow Sky Crew um, team. Yeah. You know? I mean, at, I at think this, she was raising not suspicion, but like discomfort yeah. um, among Gaia and Bellamy earlier. But now it's like really coming to light. Yeah. It's 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 starting to get um, hard to ignore. Mm hmm. Jordan logs into a computer in the lab and clicks on a video called Eureka. In the video, an aged Gabriel pops up with the original Russell in the lab behind him. A girl, Brooke, is strapped down to a chair fighting, and we quickly see that the two of them are experimenting on her against her will. They inject her with a serum, and she goes still. When, brains, or when Brooke's brain activity is dormant, Russell and Gabriel say that the body is ready, and they pull out a mind drive. Um, so really quickly, just one note that I wanted to call out here is um, they use Bellamy as like an exposition device, um, sort of putting the pieces together over and over again, um, The kind of like mimicking the way that Sarah and I put the pieces together in the last episode. I mean, he's like literally talking out loud and trying to figure out what all of this equals, um, which I thought was really useful to have. You know, I like watching him put this all together um and also narrate for our sake what's going on like it was really good uh I thought really helpful I think again it was kind of the writer showing their hands of them just clarifying that like so Becca this is not the flame this is something else yeah no I agree <laughs> and I completely agree with you but I yeah. liked I liked the way they did it yeah so no I, I it agree. was really useful and not bad 
Um, I thought it was really good. And speaking of something else, we learn in this scene that these are mind or they, these were memory drives uh, originally. So we had kind of posited that they could be like a an encyclopedia that each person was given of like things they might need to know that like a single person couldn't possibly know all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I still like that idea, but apparently they're memory drives. So kind of like a diary, like a memory diary of what happens when these first settlers land on this planet. Yeah. Um, question yeah. for you. This scene raised a lot of, I, I guess, questions for me specifically in that first, did Russell kill everyone on this planet except Gabriel? I think Yes. And then following up, because I, I do think that's what they're saying. Yeah. But following up, did they really, like, have the two of them raise a bunch of children only to, like, kill them off one by one? Yep, that's what it seems like to me. Like, you know, I mean, killing people is wrong, obviously, in general. But, like, the evilness of raising a child in hopes of killing them and bringing back someone else you know I mean, but this is the question that i was raising to you before like the guardians who raise the hosts just for slaughter i mean like this is a pattern that we've seen i mean obviously that's centuries later but like it had to originate somewhere it this is the origin story yeah well i mean at least with them though they're doing it because they're brainwashed and thinking that like my daughter my son is going to a better place to live among the gods yeah whereas like here gabriel and and russell are you know they know what they're doing they're raising these kids to kill them yeah i mean i i that's actually like one of the points i wanted to talk about is like it's so it's been 25 years of failures and we can see the damage that that has wrought on their their psyche and russell specifically i mean he has obviously become completely desensitized to the subject's pain and suffering Mm -hmm. you know he he basically lets her struggle and 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 be scared just for the sake of her remaining consciousness because that's what they need for the the experiment to work well russell's the one who wanted to give her a sorry uh, i meant meant gabriel Gabriel? yeah yeah russell wanted to give brooke a sedative and gabriel's like you know we can't do that yeah but i think russell like not because he cares but just because he doesn't want to feel too guilty right exactly um which is just interesting that at this point, you know, they have lost all subjectivity to to human suffering. Um, I don't think Gabriel has. You can see we, Gabriel. We can talk about that later when Josephine comes back. But at this particular point, when this child, innocent child, is being murdered in cold blood. I mean, it's just for the sake of science at this point. In my opinion looking at Gabriel in this early part of the video, it's not that he's like lost touch with human suffering. It's like, he's so dead inside that like he sees the suffering and he knows it's happening, but like he just can't like, he seems like he's numb, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, it is, it is really interesting psychologically how, 25 years of failing at this has has affected Russell versus Gabriel and they are so different I mean Brooke here is named as Earth Embryo 47 so I don't know if this means that they actually had 47 children um you know grow up or if like only a few of these embryos actually made it to adulthood I I don't know but she's 
47 children and she's 21 so she and, and 22 because uh, of the year she spent in um the the growth tank or whatever they called it um they they've been creating these children for almost the entire time that they you know have been on this planet yeah um and it just it like i cannot wrap my mind around this idea that number one the two of these people raised a bunch of children i mean like can you by themselves like russell like raising 25 kids no like honestly like it sounds ridiculous i'm trying to imagine them like changing diapers and like like, feeding them with a formula one of them is a good cop one of them is a bad cop (laughs) and like the idea that all of these children are then murdered yeah or at least some of them are yeah Um, I i mean it's absolutely horrifying yeah uh, and you know who else is horrified? Poor baby Jordan is like, did we just watch someone die? Oh and God. I swear, like, you could just see the thoughts of like everyone else in the room being like, oh, you poor dear. I mean, like, <laughs> welcome to the show. Yeah, welcome to the hundred. <laughs> really too pure for this show. Where is have Jordan. you been? <laughs> Um, but Gabriel does use a lot of like scientific mumbo jumbo words in this uh, scene. I we were trying to recap it uh, when we were watching it directly, and I was typing ev- everything word for word, and I was like, I don't know what like half of these words mean, and I'm not stupid when it comes to science. Like, I I usually can like kind of figure out basically what they're talking about but well it is funny because when abby uses science words i know what she's talking about yeah it's medical um like like she's like talking about like a peritoneal lavage and i'm like i know what that is (laughs) um (laughs) because i watch er (laughs) but when gabriel's talking i'm just like this could be another language completely. I have no idea what you're saying. And that was my question is like how much research did the writers do to like make this as realistic as possible? Or are they really just like throwing in a bunch of like long words and hoping that we're all too dumb to like figure out what they're I talking mean, they're about? They're based on like the Latin roots for what these things should mean. Like the, I think one of the words was like metam something no, that, that even the, there's like metampsychosis yeah. or something that is not even what i'm talking no, about no there there are all of these like brain words they were throwing in I, I think there are a lot of like latin medical roots that are in here but i have no idea if they just made them up or not if they were like you know what that sounds really cool we had to like pause the uh episode with the like subtitles on the bottom just so i could type them out because i was like what the hell was he talking I about? It, and it's irrelevant, right? <laughs> it is irrelevant, but it was just kind of a funny thing as I was trying to recap. I was like, is this even needed? It's like, we get it. Yeah. You have like eight PhDs. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, but very, 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 very important yeah. in this scene, Gabriel specifically uses the word dormant in describing Brooke's brain. Yep. Not dead or not erased, but dormant. Yep. Um, and dormant obviously means it's like in hibernation. Yep. Um, and that really is hinting to us. I mean, we already know, but like it's confirming, I guess, that Clark is not erased. She is sleeping she's asleep <laughs> she's in her subconscious right now yeah um i can't wait to see that but Does until that then mean that delilah is also sleeping well i, I think so um so I, but i do have like a weird feeling that delilah is coming back i hope so but i could see um the distinction being about why they're able to bring uh clark back and not delilah back and this harkens back to my love of stephanie myers the host um which if anyone hasn't read it has a lot of interesting insight into this specific season um but in the host it's kind of like if the brain isn't 
developed enough or if like the the personality isn't developed enough then when the alien takes over your body um you probably won't be able to come back so this kind of like affects younger children Mm -hmm. um and here i'm thinking it might be more of since delilah goes quote unquote willingly like she's willingly allowing herself to disappear i think that is different than clark fighting against it and fighting to like stay herself um i'm not sure that this is going to come into play but i could see them making that that choice of like having clark still be there because clark did not want to go you know what i mean yeah yeah i think that's a really good point and we'll have to see how that plays out yeah josephine wakes up screaming in brooke's body replaying her last moments of when her father killed both her and her mother she's terrified of russell but gabriel is able to calm her down enough for josephine to marvel at the fact that gabriel reverse engineered her memory drive to upload her entire mind after gabriel explains that russell only hurt everyone because of the eclipse josephine and russell hug gabriel talks to the camera then saying they still have a lot of tests to run but that this trial appears to be a success then he turns off the video um, okay, so before we get into the meat of this, I just wanted to call out um, some of the camera techniques they use to help us move from viewing this like voyeuristically through the, the video playing into Josephine's actual point of view. Um, they switch to a shaky cam and then they start to employ flashbacks, which have different filters, like all the flashbacks are in sepia. The, the lab itself is in this like off-white blue filter that is like simulating the actual like coloring of the video that's playing that they're watching it's all very good um i loved it i thought it was so fascinating to be watching this video and then wake up and it's josephine's pov um yeah and i like you kind of see the transition of like they move toward josephine's face watching this and then we cut directly to like her memory of it yep exactly it was and it also is like such a poignant way of talking about like the name of this episode is the gospel of josephine and like we're we're watching it now and then mm-hmm. it switches to her memory of it which yeah. is so great um i did think it was a really interesting choice to have josephine figure out herself what's going on you know she is you know working through this and talking to gabriel like oh you reverse engineered this you did all of that i mean it was such a better choice than to be than to have josephine wake up and be like what happened and then have gabriel mansplain it mansplain yeah. it to her like i love that she works it out for i mean herself. to be fair it wouldn't be mansplaining it would just be like explaining well no but <laughs> i mean i think it's so interesting that josephine's the one she's so smart yeah like, she figures it out on her own she's so smart it's like scary scary s- smart so smart yeah. she is um yeah so i just i thought that was a really great choice too um and and gabriel and josephine we see in the scene they clearly have some kind of emotional connection like even outside of the physical we saw them making out and we knew that gabriel was apparently obsessed with her um in their first life apparently understandably Uh, i mean i guess um but we see here that like gabriel's the one who's able to like calm her down and we even see from josephine in like the presence face that when gabriel comes on the screen like it affects her yeah um i i don't know to what extent i don't know how long it's been since gabriel has left them it could have been 200 years it could have been 50 years you know um but there there's still something there absolutely uh, and again, you know, we can see throughout this entire video that Gabriel looks very, very conflicted about what they're doing. Yeah. Not conflicted enough to stop, um, but he does not enjoy this. Well, sure. And this is kind of something that I want to talk about a little bit because Russell has this look of not just happiness, but relief. 
he is so deeply relieved that this worked um and it reminded me a lot of blood reina whose whole credo of reaching your goal of saving your people in order to justify all of the horrors that you have committed i mean like russell getting josephine back justifies i think in his mind it's okay that he murdered 47 children Mm -hmm. um which is sick yeah you know absolutely not condoning that but we can see that playing across his face that this is not just about getting his daughter back this is about absolving himself of all of the horrible things that he has done along the way in order to do this and i think gabriel is also feeling that but i think he's less comfortable with this than Russell is yeah I can almost see you know when he's saying oh Eureka there's this look that is telling us that he knows that what he has done is something that no one else has ever done before he's made this incredible discovery but at the same time in his mind you're also seeing him question like I don't know if this discovery ever should have been made yeah um, he's, like, he's now understanding the like implications of you know he has moved too far the science has gone too far and we have like breached some sort of moral compromise yeah it's like the question that people sometimes ask about scientists is they often say like you know can I do this but maybe the question should be should, should I, I do, do this? this yeah um and I like seeing both of those distinctions play out on Gabriel's face here yeah yeah the, I mean the, also the acting is so great yeah um really quick before we move on just wanted to call out um the title of this video is eureka obviously gabriel says that at the end the definition of eureka is having found something after searching for a long time and it is also a method to determine the purity of gold i didn't know that yeah that's cool i know isn't that crucible bitches so (laughs) fascinating hot bowl (laughs) i like there was like um i remember because like during the gold rush they named some city eureka because mm-hmm. it was like the gold but yeah it, but it's actually harkens back to like the greek definition of eureka ah oh, that's really um, fascinating so i love that they use this word for this yeah i wonder if they knew that they did you think so 100 percent. okay <laughs> yes this was not an accident <laughs> this was intentional so Sky Crew is obviously all horrified by what they've just seen. Gaia can't believe they've manipulated people with religion, but Josephine defends them much to everyone's disbelief. Bellamy tells Clark that the Primes now pose a threat to her, and Gaia races away to find Maddie, worried they'll discover that she's a nightblood. Josephine looks triumphant at the information and follows Gaia out, and then Murphy tells Bellamy that he actually agrees with Clark. He doesn't want to leave the sanctity or the safety of Sanctum. Yeah, um, so I'm curious if you have a different opinion than I do, because when I was watching Josephine, watching herself in the video, which is her first real resurrection, I felt like she had this, like, oddly emotionless expression on her face. Like, it it felt like she was looking at it, like, almost like a serial, like, her head was tilted. She's, like, watching this with, like, curiosity, but she didn't feel, seem super emotional about it. Um, but maybe you have a different idea. Yeah, I I do. I mean, for me, what I was seeing on her face was her seeing how far that she's come emotionally since that moment, Mm -hmm. like her realizing in that moment how much of her emotion she's lost because she sees, you know, her this playing out the first time and the fear and the confusion um, on Brooke Josephine's face. And she's watching this and it's like, her just noting like wow like this is like I'm not that same person anymore I maybe like that's kind of the distinction we're seeing is like you're seeing her being emotionalist and I'm seeing her noting 
how much of her like emotion about this she's lost yeah but i think the interesting thing is like she doesn't seem sad that she's lost it you know she's not she's not grieving the loss of her emotion yeah she is interested in that she's kind of evolved beyond them um which isn't great no i mean it's <laughs> which definitely not, not i also loved the fact that the video ends and the first thing that somebody says is murphy says they're immortal and then jordan disgusted is like they're murderers and that is they're both true right yeah the both of these things are true those are it's, not mutually exclusive they're terms. just a complete different interpretation and a difference in perspective and life experience which i thought was fascinating and great writing mm-hmm. um <laughs> of course we get josephine's infamous line it's not murder if they're willing like nice try Josephine. yeah good try but no <laughs> yeah not, that's not how this works <laughs> Yep. Also, the, like, look of horror on everyone's face. I know, face. Bellamy's, like, side-eye at her. <laughs> and, like, Gaia is like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> it's just so great. I did find it really weird that Bellamy, like, comes at Clark trying to change her mind by saying that they, these Sanctum people, pose a threat to her instead of Maddie. I, I really feel like that was a bit of out of character for Bellamy in terms of the writing. Because I think that Bellamy, you know, who who we know, who knows Clark to the deepest depths of her soul understands that like a threat to Maddie is much more important to her than a threat to herself. Yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. I thought that was really odd and I feel like the writers just maybe forgot for like a second. Well, it's like they kept trying to protect the secret of Maddie's identity, but then they, they learn or Josephine learns it like two lines later. Yeah. Um, when Gaia's like, I have to go find Maddie, right. you know? Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I don't know. It was, it was odd. Um, I agree with you. I do want to mention, I loved that Bellamy apologizes to Jordan. Like, that is leadership, and I appreciate it so much. Like, it was just really lovely. You know, it was unnecessary, but it was great. We were joking a little bit earlier about how we loved, you know, before Prime Fire Bellamy, the heart of her head Bellamy, but I am really enjoying the Bellamy this season. The balance he's found that I don't feel, maybe other people feel differently, but I don't feel he had that balance last season no yeah i think he's found a nice equilibrium here and it's growth right you know I hear yeah he's like you know from like love simon where that she's like you know what that is growth, growth. <laughs> um <laughs> you have to make the hand gesture with it but that's what this feels like um and again let's talk about gaia a little bit because gaia is disgusted by the prime's manipulation tactics um we can see you know this is a this feels like a corrosive corruption to her that she is morally opposed to and then immediately murphy comes at her and reminds her that she is a hypocrite because she's the one who led children to the slaughter in order to raise one of them up as a god and this slapdown like <laughs> was so so good i like I love them both dearly. Like, I love Gaia. I love Murphy. This interplay between the two of them and their strength of character and their strength of mind is so fascinating. And I just, like, what a great moment. Yeah, I mean, there is a huge difference between spirituality and religion. And I think that is what I've I've always wanted um, the Grounders to kind of get called out for this specific thing of, like, you can have the spirituality and, and faith and I think that's totally fine and, and Gaia like you know really relies on that for herself but it's like this prescriptive religion of like 
oh, to, like, create our god, we're going to have all of these children murder each other. Right. That, like, really turns the spirituality into, like, a form of evil. Um, and, and, like, that is, I think, the pitfall that a lot of, you know, religions in today's world face is, like, there's on one hand the spirituality of it and the love and the acceptance that you find in it. But then there's also a lot of hate buried underneath that people take out, you know, just based on you are not behaving in the way that our religion states you should behave. So therefore, you know, we're going to shun you or we're going to treat you badly. I think that is like the danger that you get when you fall into um, like heavily prescriptive um, beliefs, you know? Absolutely. And I think, you know, Gaia is such an interesting character because like you were saying, her spirituality is what is so, um, you know, endearing about her Mm -hmm. i think her her unwavering faith is so it's like a bedrock of her strength Mm -hmm. um and it informs so much of her choices and i do think you know for most of her you know she's a very good character like she's good i love her you know she's great yeah and i like a good person person, yeah and she i agree with a lot and i think a lot of her moral choices are come from this bedrock of faith and spirituality that she adheres to so so strictly and so strongly um but again it's it's it is a form of blindness and i love that murphy calls her out on it like you know it's is it okay for you to have a society where you murder a bunch of children in order to raise one up as a god and yet you are gonna you know some you know judge these people for murdering people after brainwashing them like where's the line yeah um i mean yeah that's the difference is you know good people can still fall into bad traditions yep yeah so what a great what a great line yeah yeah uh (laughs) i like totally lost our place oh so so do we think that murphy might feel a little bit more comfortable in stating his opinion that like he would like to stay and he doesn't really care that they're murdering people just because he sees you know quote-unquote clark having the same opinion does clark kind of justify his opinion in a way to him i don't know i actually and i talk about this later but we can talk about it now i actually think that it's his like cockroach tendencies that are coming out and the fact that he was so recently visited hell. I mean, he just seems scared shitless to die again. I think that immortality has never been more attractive to him and he will do anything to stay alive at this point. Yeah, I mean, I don't think those two things are again mutually exclusive. Not, I think no. like he wants to stay alive, but like oddly having one of the leaders like back him up um, or at least in his mind back him up I think might make him even more competent in his choice. Maybe. Yeah. Like if he's saying like, well, if Clark doesn't see a problem, then like there really isn't one and you guys should all just listen to us, yeah. you know? Yeah. I guess that's, yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Um, so I guess just to recap though, in this scene, Josephine learns that Maddie is also a nightblood. Um, and luckily we at least know that Maddie is too young at this point for them to implant someone new in her. So she's not in danger in that way yet. Um, however, she's not too young to have her bone marrow taken after Josephine discovers that Abby's able to like recreate uh, nightblood. So I'm a little worried for her. We did see in the promo of like the trailer for the original season. Or the, the the original trailer for this season, um, we saw Maddie like being experimented on, or at least tied to a chair. Yeah, having something happen to her, so that's worrisome. Yeah, it's not great. Yeah, I think we had like a, a false moment of security where we we're like, she's too young, she's too young, and then like 
psych. <laughs> Do we think that um, this will happen like next episode? I don't know. I mean, maybe. Because I think that they're going to bring Clark back by like the end of episode seven. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if like that danger is going to come afterward or if it's going to come like immediately now when I mean, Josephine has Bellamy paralyzed. Maybe. I also feel like if they lose Josephine, it now it means like they're willing to pull a bone marrow from a child to get her back. Yeah. Um, so it might, it might be after they lose Josephine and you know, they have nothing left to try. But I mean, it also, I mean, not just getting Josephine back, but like it might be their last chance of having, having a nightblood. A nightblood, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So I guess we'll we'll find out where that's heading. But I'm not liking it. Nope. <laughs> Dioza and Octavia are still stuck in the goo, but Octavia won't stop struggling, which makes her sink faster. Dioza comments on this, saying she used to be just like her. Then she points her gun at Octavia's head, asking if she genuinely wants to die. Octavia dares her to do it, but Dioza lowers her gun and tells her that as long as she's still alive, she can turn her life around. As soon as Dioza throws her gun to the side, Xavier comes out of the trees and asks how many Sky Crew has blood alteration. Octavia refuses to tell him anything, but Xavier tells her that he can wait longer than she can. Okay, so this scene was perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, Except, however, (laughs) there was a horrific terrible cheesy cut between Bellamy talking about Octavia and then like photoshopping her face next to his in this like horrible oh, yeah, transition. Oh yeah like a fade out. Yeah Aiden. it was like a fade. It, it looked like in the first Lord of the Rings movie when Frodo is lying in the bed and you have like Elrond's face like coming up like as he's curing him. It was really bad. Like really I... cheesy 2001. Uh, I'm not entirely sure I remember what you're talking yes, about. Yes you do. I mean, like, Frodo I, I don't... is in the bed. I, in we're gonna move on from yeah. this. Um, <laughs> but I did. I was like horrified by this terrible cut. Like every time we watch it, it's just like gets it, worse. It hurts. We kind of joked that it reminded us of uh, Henry and Cusick's like weird uh, trekking through the desert montage at the end of last season. Yeah. Um. We he had all these like weird like fade outs and fade ins. Yeah. And, he got real fancy with his camera. Yeah. Technique. And we were like, did Henry and Cusick direct this? Episode? It was like a lot of flourishes, <laughs> unnecessary flourishes. You know, there's just like there's kind of like a bible of the show. Yeah. Like, of like what are our prescribed or standard, you know. Shots are, um, shots are, and, yeah. and like camera, camera techniques, and this is not one of no. them. No, and it like very much stood out in an uncomfortable way. Yeah, uh, but everything else about Moving this scene <laughs> is everything to me. Like we have said over and over and over again that we want Dioza to be everyone's therapist, and I'm pretty sure she just had her first session. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> this was the first hour, very much as you know, all first hours of therapy go. <laughs> Subject, very unwilling to talk. I don't have anything to say. (laughs) (laughs) I just, everything was so good. But there is one line in this scene (laughs) that may be my favorite line of this show ever. And it is Dioza telling Octavia, so you ate people, suck it up and get over with. (laughs) (laughs) Like, yes, get over. Over it. That is what I have been saying about this stupid cannibalism plotline ever since it appeared. So you ate people. Get over it. Like, you have done so much worse. And yet, this is the thing they all harp on? Yeah, and I mean, I'm not... Not to minimize how horrific and traumatic it would be to eat your friends. Gross. It's gross. But they were dead. Like, that you didn't murder them to eat them. And... 
what was I mean I think what's even more important and we can get into this a lot more when we talk about Abby later is like what was your alternative exactly that's what I'm saying like, um you had there this was the only it was either this or die all of you die I mean was, I guess you could make the argument like Kane did that maybe they should die instead of eat people but I'm also like mm, like maybe you should have died instead of doing all of the other horrible things that you've done Kane like why are we drawing the line here at eating dead people you know yeah no it's a great question um and I'll never Dioza, it. of course per- she's just so perceptive you know like she's she cuts right through the bullshit she's like suck it up Life is hard, and she has Octavia completely pegged. You know, she understands her in a way that Octavia does not. I mean, obviously, since Octavia is completely unself-aware in, like, every sense of the word. <laughs> um, and I just, I love how quickly Dioza is able to pinpoint the triggers that Octavia is suffering from. Yeah. Um, like, immediately. And I guess my question for you is, I thought it was so interesting. I mean... Dioza, it was a genuine question. Like, do you want me to put you out of your misery? Our put you misery. out of our misery. Our misery. <laughs> you are you are making us both miserable. But I think that was like a genuine question. You know, she's asking Octavia, I want you to really think about this. And of course, in true Octavia fashion, I guess my question is, is, is this a bluff or is she actually asking Dioza to pull the trigger? I think that deep down Octavia doesn't really believe Dioza will pull the trigger, but I also think Octavia does believe that she wants to die in this moment. So it's like two different things Mm -hmm. of like her being like, do it, go ahead. Like at least I'll kind of go out fighting. Um, But also, you know, being able to push her head in front of this gun because like, I don't think she really believes Dioza would do it. I honestly don't think Dioza would do it. I just don't think that's Dioza. I mean, we see Dioza doesn't do well, it yeah she, she can't um and it, what she says to her is possibly the most beautiful line this show has ever given us right after the best line of <laughs> people so you hate people <laughs> which is diosa tells octavia as long as you draw breath you can turn it around which is i mean my god the optimism and hopefulness and courage and strength in that line is so amazing um and it is so important in a show that has spent so long focusing on the struggle and the things you'll do to survive and the compromises and it's like this woman has lost everything has become the most hated war criminal in the last 200 years and yet she has somehow been able to maintain this idea that tomorrow is going to be better, that you can make choices that will make it better. Um, and it is an inverse, I think, and, and, and a, a, um, a, you know, a choice that the writers made, I think intentionally, that this is like an inverse of the Jos- Jasper plotline, you know, where we saw a character like Octavia descending into depression who refused to turn it around. I mean, he just chose to give up um and i i applauded the show when they when they gave us this storyline and when they decided to interrogate the idea and the issue of depression and suicide i thought they handled it pretty well um but i also appreciate that there is you know i like that they're showing the the flip side of this whereas like you can be mired it's never too late it's never too late like you don't you have choices you have options like 
you don't have to give up. And I think this is so emblematic of where they're going this season. I mean, it was just like perfectly encapsulates the difference in tone. I mean, like when we talk about tone, like the difference between season four and season six can be boiled down to these two depressive suicidal moments between Jasper and Octavia and the different approaches that they're taking with them, which is amazing. For me, the line, as long as you draw breath, you can turn it around, really is a much better version of Kane's and Abby's montage of uh, first we survive, then we get our humanity back. Yeah. Because for them, I feel like they're justifying doing bad things as long as they can get to a point when they don't have to do bad things anymore. Mm-hmm. Whereas this is saying, like, you can be doing bad things all up until this exact moment. But in that moment, if you choose, like Monty wanted us to do, like if you choose to do better, you can. Like that is a choice that you make. Right. And you can do better immediately. And I just feel like that feels so much more powerful to me than Kane's and Abby's like, we're going to like, the ends justify the means. Like we're going to do what we have to do to survive. And then we'll like try to be good people. Yeah. And I mean, it's like almost like the difference in like, we're going to procrastinate getting our humanity back rather than being like actively like you know what I'm really tired of making bad choices Mm -hmm. I'm gonna start doing better for myself and for everyone around me I mean it's just a really powerful sentiment um so great job guys yeah holy shit (laughs) I mean I I really hope that we learn a little bit more about Dioza this season because she mentions here um she calls back the story she told us last year about her slitting her throat in her lowest moment and that was when her own men were kind of coming for her to take her take her captive or to imprison her yeah um and I really want to know how she got to that point like how she got to that to that lowest moment rock bottom point of her being like I would rather die than like allow them to like take me and imprison me yeah I mean we've been begging for Dioza backstory for so long now I feel like we get like these teeny tiny tidbits yeah the tidbits of them comparing her to Hitler and like sprinkling in Saddam Hussein I just like I I also I was gonna say this earlier but like I really want like a Gaia plot line like a Gaia centric plot line I feel like she's ready and I want that actress to do more on this show um but I also want like, for God's sake, give me, like, a Dioza-centric plot line. Like, I want backstory. I want... Oh, you want, a, you want backstory. I want a flashback episode yeah. for her. Because yeah. this is, like, a Dioza-centric plot Yeah, no, plot I, line. I want, like, backstory flashback style okay. is what I want. Um, lastly, Dioza calls out Xavier's white spot on his head, um, which is something that the actor himself seems to have just going through pictures of him on other shows. Um, I don't know if it's a scar or just like a premature um, graying in that area, but he has it. Dioza called it out. Miranda has it. And Blythe Ann also has a spot of white. Um, I've seen people theorize online that this could be like, it could happen if you were a host and maybe like either took in a flame and had it taken out or like you still have a flame or I guess a mind drive in you. I don't know how that would relate then to Blythe Ann specifically. Yeah. My kind of theory is this means that Blythe Ann, Miranda, and Xavier are all related. Yeah. I think Miranda, it's possible, could have been from Blythe Ann's, like, family line. It, like, it makes sense to me, given that Delilah, Blythe Ann's child, was a Nightblood, that, like, Nightbloods run in their family. Yeah. Um, and so that is my, like, idea of, like, why they all have like white spots in their hair or at least the way that the show took Xavier's like real life white spot in his hair and like kind of brought in 
um, yeah. connections there. Yeah, turned it into a an actual thing on the show. I don't know if that really means anything. Um, yeah. Other than the fact that that would make Blythean, or I mean, uh, Xavier and Delilah related in some way, and maybe that's why he was so determined to like get her out. Um, I don't know. I don't know. We'll but see. I hope we find out. Russell and Simone meet Josephine in what looks like a small sanctuary. Josephine tells them they have at least one other nightblood, but thinks they're likely to have more. Russell doesn't want to know, or Russell doesn't want to use Forrest to take the nightbloods, but Josephine says they either find the nightbloods and kill the rest, or Skycrew will kill them when they find out what Russell has done. So, sorry, I got distracted by what you were saying. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was like, yes, that's so interesting. Um, we First thing I wanted to call out is, the first thing we see is Josephine is staring at her reflection as the scene begins. And again, it just, just so obvious how obsessed she is with Clark's body, her new body, but also herself. I mean, like, she's just like the most self-centered human on this planet. Well, yeah, that's kind of what I wanted to call up in this scene is that Josephine still acts like this like whiny bratty teenager even though she's 200 years old give or take uh it it just like again is calling into this kind of person that she is she's so deeply selfish and carefree and impulsive that she has never grown up and taken on real responsibility or at least she's never cared about the responsibilities that she has um and i think that that's partially because of her you know, sociopathy, psychopathy, whatever you want to want to call it. Um, but it's just, it's interesting to me to see this person who's never grown up. And I also wonder if that is because this person has parents who are also never growing up. So they're like trapped in this like perpetual cycle of parent and child. Maybe, maybe, you know, I think age does, I mean, like the physical act of aging plays a significant part in our emotional growth. Um, but I also think it's because she is really privileged. I mean, yeah. she's so spoiled. Um, and she's never been through any kind of, I mean, other than the trauma of being murdered and then brought back to life multiple times. I, which, you know, ultimately, like, what are the repercussions of that for her? None. Um, I don't think she's ever suffered any real loss or any real discernible tragedy. Um, that would inform somebody and and force them to reconcile their choices and the consequences of their choices and and mortality because they she doesn't have to worry about it. Yeah. Um, sure. And if you don't have that, then you never are forced to grow up. Yeah. Her like, Dad, I'm tired and I just want to sleep in my own bed. You like, I wanted to slap her. I know. It's like, I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry that, like, taking over Clark's body is so hard for you. Yeah, like, I'm sorry that you have to, to like, deal with all this trauma, like, you know, drama of, like, impersonating the, the being that you your dad murdered on your behalf and so, like, you can ensure the survival of your own people. Like, it's a rough yes, life. Hard times for you. <laughs> I feel so bad. Um, not... And I also wanted to call out in this scene, you know, Russell is, is putting so much emphasis on the fact that they they need to get more Nightbloods, um, but they never actually talk about the real, I think, undercurrent and threat that is posing, is like, hanging over their heads, which is they need to find more Nightbloods so that they can appease the rest of the Primes when they inevitably find out that they skipped the line for Josephine's sake. Yeah. They have no one else to offer up. 
they need to make they need to find more nightbloods. Otherwise, there's going to be a a riot. Yeah, Miranda's going to be coming at them. Right. So you know, I think there's like all these you know superficial reasons, but really they're just trying to save their own ass, and that's why Russell is pushing Josephine so hard on this. He's like, we messed up for you, and we need you to help us fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the hypocrisy of Russell just standing oh in front God. of Josephine and being like, I won't stoop to Sky Crew's level, when he's like, again, standing in front of the body of the girl from Sky Crew that he murdered to get his daughter back. I mean, again, we've talked about this so many times, but like, his state of delusion is out of control i mean and we, we keep harping on it because it's just it baffles it's us mind-boggling i mean if you were to superficially we've talked about this offline but if you were to superficially look at the two of them josephine and russell i think the immediate or like obvious answer of which of the two of them is crazier would be josephine but what if you actually examine it she's not crazy she's just evil you know she is completely in control she knows exactly what she's doing she is totally pragmatic it's Russell who is living in this like endless state of denial and like basking in his own delusions of grandeur who's actually insane. I mean, he's insane. Um, And that is just so fascinating when you look at like the power dynamics at play here and who is actually in control. I mean, it's just, it's just astounding. Well, it's interesting because Russell has brainwashed himself along with yes, other people. Exactly. He has brainwashed him. He is drinking his own Kool-Aid. <laughs> his favorite brand. It's the cherry flavor. He loves it. <laughs> uh, in the tavern, all of Sky Crew, Josephine included, is meeting to discuss what they discovered. Josephine playing Clark maintains that she wants to stay. Bellamy wants to leave immediately, but Murphy says it will take them lifetimes to build a new society well they're already in a safe place here and then murphy mentions the fact that clark was made into a nightblood in the lab and josephine realizes that sky crew knows how to artificially create nightblood ding 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 ding. (laughs) winner uh as they argue jordan goes over to priya and confronts her about delilah and priya tells him that delilah wants him to know that she's happy sky crew pulls jordan away as bellamy watches josephine leave the tavern so much to talk about here um but the first thing i want to mention is i just i love how simply maddie puts this choice into context you know she tells clark by staying clark is condoning these choices and it's just that simple and you know she's wondering why clark is okay with this is very out of character for her it is um, for her mom yeah and it's just that easy i mean it's that question of like if you do nothing are you responsible are you complicit um i think that honestly depends a lot from answer to answer like i always think of the the train experiment where you're like on the train tracks and you're headed toward a group of people and you could like change the train to go in a different direction but if you do that you're gonna like kill someone you love and so it's like what where is your responsibility if you have to like kill people on either choice like what is the more moral choice and that is like a question philosophers have tried to figure out for who knows how long Um, the entire basis of the good place yeah uh and you know i I don't know i don't either but But i do think in this situation doing nothing makes you complicit yeah and i and i love that maddie's not answering this question but asking this this is a question she's posing Mm -hmm. um and it's a question that as a viewer we're meant to to wonder about ourselves um i (laughs) i did love that josephine her face when she found out that they manufacture nightbloods it was just like all pretense was dropped she was just like her eyes bugged out she was like i've won the jackpot like i found the gold
golden nugget. Like, like I've got the golden ticket. Yeah. <laughs> she just was not subtle. I'm glad no one was looking at her face. <laughs> I mean, like, at this point, I think she's just gotten really bored of playing Clark. And yeah. she's like, I just need to, like, find out the info and GTFO. Yeah, the jig is almost up. Yeah. Uh, everyone's faces when Josephine calls Murphy John, like, Honestly, everyone should have known from that I know. exact moment. I know. It was so weird. I mean, just like the side eye and like the, like, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, uh, so good. Um, I mean, and Bellamy specifically, we see him over and over throughout the scene, like looking over at Josephine with this questioning look in his face. Like, like I think deep down, he's really starting to piece it together, but he's at a point still where he doesn't want to consciously accept what has happened yeah but like i think subconsciously he's like this is not right right Something I, is not right. i mean like you can clearly see his brain is putting the pieces together even if his heart is like i don't believe it i don't, I don't want, want to, to believe, believe it, it. Mm-hmm. but his, the head of him the head part of bellamy is very much like something is not yeah right <laughs> something is amiss. something is amiss um i i really do love though you know kind of calling in again to this question of religion and the grounder religion specifically Gaia says that the purpose of the flame is about passing wisdom down and not hoarding it. And I love that idea. And, and like, you know, I, I, I take um, exception to some of the things that the grounders did for their religion. But I do, I think, like this idea of the flame just being like wisdom that you're passing down through the generations. Absolutely. And I love this. I mean, like specifically she calls it perversion, right? It's just mm-hmm. a perversion of what Becca intended, which I think is so interesting when you think about creation and like the author's intent versus like what the user or reader or watcher or viewers, um, you know, interpretation is like, again, the author creates something, but she can't control how people use it. Um, And, her intent, I think, was something close to what what the grounders, you know, in actual, like, practical application is. I don't think she exactly wanted them to, like, grow into a cult that murders children. <laughs> um, but I think this idea of, like, storing wisdom and passing it down to help generations and generations later is beautiful. And I love that Gaia, that's the, that's the idea. That is what Gaia is so, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, faithful to. Um, and I mean, it's a it's a scientific way of calling on your ancestors for guidance or wisdom. Absolutely. Um, and, and they're just luckily able to make it real. Yeah, they're <laughs> just like really practical about it. Yeah. Um, th- these are practical applications for this like very spiritual um, idea and philosophy. Um, and that's why she is so absolutely horrified by what they have done with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's another great hot take from Murphy who's like you know Becca wasn't a god either she was a scientist (laughs) just to clarify (laughs) and it's so true right like it's a really important lesson we need to be very careful about who we idolize and what we prescribe to people who are not gods yeah I mean again Becca is uh, unintentionally responsible for the death of humanity and the destruction of earth and a lot of suffering yeah I mean she's responsible I mean Again, it's it's kind of like a lot of people are responsible, but she is the primary factor She's the creator. in all of this. She's the creator of this suffering. Yeah, <laughs> she is. Do love Becca, though. Nope. I love her so much, and I want a prequel. No of- disrespect to Becca. I effing love her. I want a Becca prequel so badly. I, 
anyway. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, do we think that Priya can actually communicate with Delilah, or is Priya just lying to Jordan? Okay, so this was a question I actually had for you, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to say I think she's totally lying to Jordan, but I actually think she's going to end up being right anyway. Yeah, I think if you tie this into what I said earlier about Delilah willingly allowing this to happen to her, I think she is at peace, even if her mind, even if she's still there somewhere, yeah. I think she's okay. Um, I don't think Priya has any idea No, how Delilah is at this point. None. <laughs> no, she's lying. Yeah. Um. Or at least I think she's lying. I think that they have to pretend to, ev- to like the other people yeah. that they can commune. interact and commune with yeah. the, the, the people with the gods. who have joined the primes. Yes. Yeah. Um, but they really can't. Yeah. You don't have any special powers. You're just in like a regular person's body. You yeah. just have a mind chip. Because if they could, then the primes wouldn't be so convinced that everyone that they took over was dead. Right. Which they seem to Which actually be convinced of. So I guess we'll see more very soon but yeah uh josephine heads outside but bellamy follows her they go into the sanctuary to talk and bellamy can't believe they're on different sides of this issue josephine asks why they can judge sanctum but not themselves and bellamy says he judges himself every day and the difference between him and the primes is that he sees the faces of the people he's killed in his dreams not in the mirror only he says this last bit in Dragetisling. And Josephine is clearly trying to parse through the foreign words, but ultimately gives up and breaks character and asks him what he means by that last part. Bellamy, horrified, throws her up against a wall, asking who she is, but Josephine quickly stabs him with the paralytic. God, this scene was good. Oh, so good. <laughs> this is such a good scene. I mean, holy crap. It was so good. And I loved watching Bellamy test this person who he is very suspicious of and really I think at this point is pretty sure is not Clark I mean it was just so satisfying to watch him test her and we know that he's testing her and I love when Bellamy is smart yeah I mean he comes out uh, of the tavern and immediately speaks trig to to Josephine and Josephine is able to kind of like figure out what he means and yeah, ask Jay context to clues. so I think there's like a part of him that's like okay I'm not sure like that like kind of appeased him a little bit yeah but then they immediately go into this conversation and like everything is wrong alarm uh, Alarm alarms are blaring um i love that bellamy's essentially at the beginning of this being like why can i not use our together line here like like, i was so prepared i had it like ready and ready to go but (laughs) yeah it was like you know on the assembly line yeah i'm just gonna pick it up and send it out on this way but you just stopped it in its track yeah um, and I love that, you know, rather than wait to get caught, like Josephine, you know, her spidey senses are tingling and she, she just gives up the act and, to, and just maintains her own agency. She's like, you know what? I'm not going to wait for you to, to call me out. I'm going to tell you that I'm not who you think I am. Also, I'm tired of playing <laughs> Clark. tired. She wears bad clothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And it is, it's really nice to hear Bellamy talk about how much his sins still weigh on him. I mean, this is something that we know to be true. Um, and I, I like that he verbalizes this. Um, but, you know, throughout this season, we've been able to see that he has moved on from this. He's, he's not 
he's never going to forget about it, but he can process his grief and his um, shame and his guilt in a productive way that allows him to still be functional. Um, So I really liked hearing this from him. And also just like a testimony that, you know, how much he and Clark have been through and his like utter dismay that she would say this to him, you know, like I think that you had like a really good point when you would want to talk about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess first just, I agree that we can see how Bellamy still holds the weight of these sins, but is able to like move forward and try to do good with them. And it reminds me back of uh, beginning of season four, when I still liked Kane, when he and Bellamy had that conversation about like, you know, you turn the page and you do better. Yep. Um, like that's all you can do is just move forward and like try to be a better person. Um, and I really liked that line and I liked, um, the way that Bellamy kind of progressed from there. And I think he's really taken that to heart and is still trying to do that. Yeah. Um, Personally, I think that Bellamy knew in his heart that when Clark is like, you know, oh, we can judge them, but not ourselves. Like he knows this is not Clark. Yeah. I mean that like tripped a wire. Yeah. Like Bellamy knows that Clark, like the real Clark would never say that because the real Clark judges herself harder than anyone else judges her. You know, like she, hates the things that she's done and she like is going to carry that weight forever and and Clark would never say this she never would um so I think he knows but like is giving her one more test when he like approaches her with a trick yeah as like almost begging her like please prove me understand me please prove me wrong I do not want this to have happened yeah um but unfortunately it has and when he realizes this, you know, when Josephine actually comes out and is like, you know, can you repeat that last part? Like the horror in his eyes and the horror in his eyes too, after he's been paralyzed and um, Josephine's leaving over him, it's like Clark is dead. And he's looking at this like evil bitch who took over her body. I know. (laughs) And it's such an interesting parallel. um, The way that they like zoom in on him paralyzed and her looming over him in the same way that they like zoomed in on Clark when she was paralyzed with Russell looming over her like Mm -hmm. the utter terror um and helplessness in their bodies I mean it's just it's so good yeah the bell arc of it all is so good it really is and I'm so so excited to see what Josephine's plans are for Bellamy um because I think Eliza said that she that she has Josephine uh, more ones to toy with him than like kill him or hurt him. And I so like that. I, Oh, I am like sign the fuck up for <laughs> Josephine using Bellamy's feelings for Clark against him and, or using them as like motivation to like help her. I, I like, I'm so here for those scenes. <sighs> we shall see. We shall see. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. In the forest, Xavier is waiting for Octavia and Dioza to tell him how many nightbloods they have. Suddenly, they hear a rumble. Josephine. (laughs) Xavier jumps up, saying it's a temporal flare. He throws them the rope before running away. Octavia can't move, so she tells Dioza to go on without her, and Dioza vows to come back. The temporal flare shoots toward Octavia, and at the last moment, she decides to go under the goo and save herself. Once the flare is passed, we see that all the trees in the area have been petrified. Dioza returns to find the glue, the glue, kind of glue, the goo solidified, and she breaks it open with the rock and pulls Octavia out. She notices that Octavia must want to live after all, and Octavia nods. Then Octavia notices that her hand, which had been pressed up against the surface of the goo, has now aged significantly. So... I like at the beginning of this scene that we see that Dioza could really talk anytime. She could tell Xavier what he wants 
at any moment. Yeah, she but, knows the answer. Yeah, but she wants Octavia to be the one, the one to do it because she wants Octavia to choose to save herself, yes. essentially. Yeah, no, it's a it's a therapy session. Yeah. For, in, in it's purest form. Tough love. Um, <laughs> and I, I also love that, uh, that Xavier recognizes what Octavia values in this death. You know, it's a hero's way out. And I love this connection between them, that he is able to see what she thinks is is she's gonna get out of this he doesn't think she's right but he sees what she sees i don't just well okay so first off in the actual script scene they released of this they actually had a moment where octavia and xavier's eyes like meet and lock eyes they lock eyes and they didn't really do that in the actual filming like we don't actually see that on screen but that was the initial intention um and for me i think that xavier 100% 100% not not maybe not agrees with her but has been there yeah like that he that was like a part of his past where he was Octavia in the same way that Dioza was Octavia um and I'm curious to see how that happened for him yeah I want to know his backstory so badly I love the idea that both Octavia and Xavier or that uh both Dioza and Xavier understand Octavia and Octavia's struggles in a way that maybe no one else from Sky Crew can um, and so maybe these three can just like team up as Help like a, each other. Yeah. And yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I really like Xavier and Octavia as a pair because Xavier seems to be somebody who's been where Octavia has been and has come out the other side better for it. Um, who has been able to move beyond this place and is an example for her. Um, and so obviously he, he can recognize what she's going through and, um, can relate to her. But obviously she is having a hard time relating to him. I guess in this moment, I was going to talk about it a little bit later, but let's just let's just talk about Xavier. Yeah. We find out in this scene that the temporal flare messes with time. Like Octavia's hand has aged. Um, all of the trees have aged into like being petrified. Um, my question is, like, does the temporal flare just age things upward or does it mess with time in both directions? So like, mm. could it age things downward and if it did is xavier gabriel so for very selfish reasons i don't want him to be because i really ship him and octavia and i do not ship him with octavia if he is gabriel yeah same um because i ship them very hard i ship them so hard and i agree that if he's gabriel not only do i not want that for octavia but I also don't think the show will go there. No, I agree. Yeah, this is like a twofold issue. Yeah. Whereas, like, if he's Gabriel, I don't think the show will pair them up. I mean, maybe they would because he's, like, young again. Maybe. But I also, and, like, that would be, like, a new start for him and, like, a new life together. I don't know. I, I mean, could, I guess I could see both people who have done really bad horrible things. Horrible things. If like, Gabriel. connect in yeah. that way. Um. I don't know if I like that as much as this, like, rando forest boy. Yeah. Which I love. I'm into the rando forest boy part. So much more. Um, But I do think that's a really interesting question. Yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that's something that the hundred would do is, like, give us this, like, hot new character and then turn it around and, like, make us realize that he's been Gabriel, the quote-unquote old man all along. Yeah. And it does make sense to me why Xavier would be called Gabriel's messenger because perhaps they think that – perhaps he's the only one with a connection to Gabriel, so they think. But to find out that, like, he really is Gabriel and that's why he knows what Gabriel would want. Yeah. No, Um, it's so true. 
but I'm I'm not convinced, but I am suspicious, and I'm also not thrilled with the idea. Um, and I, if it is Gabriel, I don't think that it would be Gabriel in his original body because it's a different actor. Yeah. Um, so Gabriel, that means would it have at least skipped bodies once, if not many well, times. Right. And that would kind of coincide with our theory that Gabriel left fairly recently mm-hmm. and that he was body snatching for several centuries before, before finally saying I've had enough. Yeah. And then again, the question is like how is Gabriel's and Josephine's relationship at this point? Right. They haven't seen each other for a while, but does that mean that, you know, whatever they had is done or does that mean that it's still there? And if it is still there, like get the hell away from Octavia. She does not need that level of drama in her life right now. Especially if he's like choosing Clark over. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you. Um, it really is like kind of rewinding back then. It really is touching to me that Octavia tells Dioza to save her baby and like to get out. And like, again, like Octavia and Dioza, like the look they share is very emotional. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is everything that I've ever asked for, for Octavia. This is catharsis. This is character development. This is positive progression. This is Dioza being the one to help her get there. Like this is what I wanted. This, this is it. I'm really, really hoping that this is Dio's or Octavia's rock bottom. Like we've thought before that Octavia has reached rock bottom, but we've still found like, oh nope, there's still further to fall. There's <laughs> hidden depths. Um, but I genuinely think, given the tone of this season and the way that things have changed for all these characters who are now trying to work their way out of the pit of despair, if you will. Yes. Um, that this seems likely that this was Octavia's like great turning point in her life. I could only hope so. I've been burned by this before. (laughs) Uh, She chooses to save herself. She could let the temporal flare hit her, but she chooses to go under. And, and, and Dioza even calls this out being like, you went under, you want to live. And And she admits it. Well, yeah. And Octavia like gives this little nod, like, yes, I want to live. And it's an, it's, um, it's an acceptance of that fact. Yeah. Like, she can't deny it anymore. She wants to live. She wants to move on. So, I got... I, I love it. I love it so much. I love it much. so hard. And I'm really excited to see the direction that Octavia's arc takes from this moment. And I just feel like she needs to be with Dioza for oh, the yeah. rest of her life. Forever. <laughs> like, you are not a light sensei. You can't go anywhere. <laughs> um, I did want to bring up on Twitter at P1 Bliss theorized that Dioza might give birth soon and that hope might grow up really fast, perhaps because of the temporal flare. And I love this concept of, you know, we were questioning, like, how the hell is this going to work? Because the show can't really have a baby. Like, it's not a show that facilitates a baby's positive growth. Yeah. Um, there's nor no do I want a baby. On yeah. This nor show. do I want Dioza to just, like, be settled with a baby and, like, having to, like, take a baby everywhere. That just seems like it's going to get in her way for me for me um but I love the idea that Dioza hope in her stomach like grows up and she has to give birth and like hope becomes a medium-sized child very quickly yeah uh because of the temporal flare and the time anomaly um I think that's very likely given that they've cast a young hope who's like I don't know seven or eight yeah um and we couldn't figure out if she didn't have this baby in cryo sleep like how is this baby becoming how are we skipping five to seven years yeah we were like is this a hallucination a dream you know what is this yeah um but I think it's likely that this is the answer yeah the anomaly temporal flare is is gonna 
age her up. Yeah. I think that's a really great idea. I love it. Nice job, P1 Bliss. Uh, really loving it. So, yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Uh, Abby is still working, and Jackson tries to get her to take a break. He tells her that she's replaced pills with this new addiction, but Abby says that she wants to save Marcus not because of pills, but because he's good and deserves to live, and the rest of them don't. Both Abby and Jackson went along with Bloodrena while Marcus tried to stop her. Jackson says that he was just doing his job, which Abby says is what every war criminal has said ever. Josephine is listening to all of this outside, but at that, she leaves. So I, as I'm sure none of you are surprised to hear, I cannot express how much I do not care about this plot or this scene. I am very disappointed that they chose to go with this direction with Abby, which we've talked about in this episode before. I thought we were done with this and I'm just, I'm really, I'm really tired of it. Yeah, I'm I'm honestly, I'm not going to harp on this scene. I don't understand. I don't understand why. I mean... No, I, I don't understand why uh, they think that they could have done any differently than what Octavia yeah, did. Yeah, no, I mean... Especially since it was Abby's idea, and she was right. <laughs> Look, what was Dioza's line again? You ate people. Get over it, Abby. Like, get over it. Like, it's in the past. You need to move on. Um, I don't know how to put it any simpler yeah. than that. Um, and I just also, I fundamentally disagree with Abby's take on Jackson here. I mean, like, yeah, he, he's culpable to some degree. Um, we've doc- talked about, you know, doing nothing, doing still nothing makes and you being complicit. a bystander. But comparing him to a war criminal is an incredible stretch. That yeah, it's, I, it's kind of a disgusting stretch. Yeah. Um, it, it, it begs credulity. Credul- I can't say that word. Cred- Never mind. Credulity. Credulity. <laughs> um. And I, I'm wondering, like, is the show suggesting that Abby's take here is right? Like, are they positing? Are they behind her on this? Or are we meant to interpret this as just, like, her addiction and craziness talking? Because the way that I interpreted it was, like, this was, like, a bomb drop. You know, this was, like, a nugget that they dropped down here. And we were supposed to all be, like, oh, that's so true. But I, like, was flabbergasted by this. I knew from the second Jackson said... I was just doing my job. I knew she was going to say that next. And like in my mind, I was like, don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say yeah, it. And I, then she said it. And I, I mean, was like, the way they set it up, it seems like the show truly believes this. I don't know. I honestly have a hard time reading in this moment what the show believes because I am so, I just, I hate this so much. And I just don't understand this direction for Abby, and and I I hope that Jackson doesn't really take this to heart because I think it's bullshit. I think it's bullshit. I think comparing Jackson to, like, essentially a Nazi is offensive. Honestly, it is. It is (laughs) offensive. It is. Jackson was trying to survive. Like, that's the thing is, like, he wasn't just doing his job. That felt like a very, like, show-constructed line for me. Me too. Like, he was trying to survive being in this bunker with all these people who had no food. Like, and again, I call it back. What was your alternative? Exactly. Exactly. I, again, I don't want yeah, to. Yeah. Well, we need to stop. Um, <laughs> but I will say, I have no idea how they're going to end up saving Kane because he, as Jackson says, only has ten minutes left to live once he's out of cryo. But the actual surgery they would need would take like fifteen hours. So I'm sure he's coming back because otherwise they probably would have just killed him off. Yeah. But I don't know how. <laughs> I mean, at this point, like, I don't, I, just as, like, a service, disservice to Abby, like, I don't want her to get what she wants at this moment, so I don't want Kane to come back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, so let's end up this episode Wrap here. It up. Wrap it up with Jade stopping Josephine, saying that she thought Abby was the key. And Josephine says that she is, but she needs a better coach. In the tavern, Josephine finds Murphy drinking and reveals to him that she is not Clark. Clark is dead. And before he can react, she asks him if he'd like to be immortal too. So... First off, I love how Josephine is, like, listening to all this, like, blood drain war criminal crap. And she's like, mm, nope, this is beyond me. I'm going to need some help here. <laughs> yeah, context is key. Um, <laughs> and I also love that she has, like, the instincts. And we have seen her progressively throughout this episode, like, take note of Murphy specifically whenever he says something that's, like, slightly morally gray. Um, and she can identify that he's probably, like, the best person to approach to get more intel. Yeah. Um, like, he is her the easiest target for her to cling to you know it's not Bellamy <laughs> no I mean Josephine at this point is like I'm done pretending I'm just gonna like find Murphy I'm gonna lay it out like he seems out of everyone to be the one who would understand me let's just do this <laughs> yeah yeah and I mean it, watching her shed her Clark exterior like the Josephine that comes through in this scene is so she has so much swagger. She's so confident. Yeah. Um, and it's really fun to watch her play. And it's fun to watch her play against Richard Harmon, who's so wonderful. And I loved when he, uh, Murphy r realizes Clark is dead. You know, his face is just so sad. He's so devastated. But he doesn't even have time to really react. He's just, there's like this tiny second of shock and grief and anger and sadness, like all wrapped up on Richard Harmon's face. And it's beautiful. Um, and I love that, you know, it's clear that he obviously still loves Clark. He's mad at her. I mean, that's why you can have that level of anger is because you also have love. Yeah. You, underneath it. Sure. You wouldn't be angry if you didn't love them. Yeah. You can't be, well, you could be angry at someone if you didn't care about them, but you couldn't have like that rage yeah. that Murphy and Raven are carrying if yeah. you, you know, didn't feel so strongly about somebody. Yeah. And that sense of betrayal. Um, but I guess this kind of brings up the question as we're going into the next episode is what are our thoughts about Murphy right now? Is he like going to take Josephine's offer? And if he does, is it like in a way that he wants to, you know, find a way to save Clark and just play along? Or is he like seriously considering it? I think it's all of the above. Yeah. He is a cockroach and a Slytherin. I think it would be out of character for him to not at least consider it. I think his near, uh, death experience uh and his brush with hell has severely scarred unquote, him hell yeah <laughs> or his what he thinks is hell has severely scarred him and like i said earlier i think you know immortality has never been more attractive to him this could not come at a better time for yeah. murphy's mind um i i don't i do believe that he's grown as a human um and i think he does care about his fellow sky crew people and clark i don't believe that he thinks that he's going to go along with this, but I also don't think that he wants to shut the door. And I think that, you know, he kind of feels like, okay, I can play along for a while and, and see where we are and then work, work from in the inside. But I also think that he'd be dumb if, I mean, it would be unmurphy like if he wasn't actually considering it a little bit. Yeah. I think I 100% agree with that. Yeah. I, I think, I think that it's all the things. I think when he's like listening to this going in his mind, he's like, could I get Clark back? Is Clark dead? But if Clark is dead, like, maybe I should just, you know, do this because, like, you know, what's what the are point? My, right. my question is, my other question is, do we think that, let's just say Clark is dead, which he's not, but, like, let's pretend she's dead. Mm -hmm. And Josephine, like, they can't get Clark back. If Murphy were to, like, side with Josephine, 
but that would mean um you know he would be exchanging immortality for like his family and friends would he do it i don't think so I don't think so either. I think, like, in this moment, he's yeah. playing the cockroach. He is a cockroach. He does want to survive. But I think that Murphy as a character has grown enough that, like, if it comes down to a choice between himself and saving his family, he's going to save his family. I agree. At least I hope that's where I, we I think that's. I think that's true. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the end of this episode. Woo! So <laughs> much to talk about. And there is still more. Um, so let's dive into some discussion points before we wrap all of this up. I did want to briefly mention um, the title meaning in this episode. Title is The Gospel of Josephine. Um, and there are a couple of interpretations of this I just wanted to briefly mention, which is the first is the obvious like literature and legacy that she left behind in previous lifetimes. Right? The gospel is this like kind of like biblical scripture. Um, no, uh, kind of describing the life and times of a, a important biblical person or a religious person, um, and like in that sense, like the the legacy that Josephine has left behind, both in terms of like the book on eugenics that she wrote, the like legacy in her family, the the like you know clear you know position of power that she still plays for all of these people in Sanctum who worship her like a god. Um, is like the obvious gospel of Josephine that this this um, episode is pointing to. But I also think another interpretation is the idea of the lies and the persona that she's constructing as Clark throughout this episode is like her is another gospel. It's, it's, it's a it's a falsehood and it's a it's a story she's telling um, for people to believe, mm -hmm. um, which is really interesting to think about. So. That's my bit on that. Okay. Um, let's move on to favorite lines. What was your favorite line? Well, my favorite line, obviously, as I've said, my favorite line in this episode, my favorite line maybe in the show is, so you ate people, suck it up and get over it. Oh, it's so good. So good. <laughs> um, okay, my favorite line, uh, I also mentioned a little bit earlier, is the first hot take Murphy snaps back at Gaia, which is so much for respecting their faith. I mean, no offense. We let a bunch of kids fight to the, or you let a bunch of kids fight to the death to become your God. Um, which just so succinctly wraps up the hypocrisy of faith versus science versus a lot of things on this show. Yeah. yeah, spirituality. Thank you. And then, but I did have a very close second, which I'm sure you guys could guess, which is when Dioza tells Octavia, as long as you draw breath, you can turn it around, which is honestly like, I think one of the strongest messages this show has ever given us. Yeah. I, I think it's just a beautiful, beautiful little nugget. I agree. Um, all right. Let's talk about our favorite scenes. What was yours? My favorite scene. And this is, this was a big episode guys. Like there were so many good scenes and Josephine slash Eliza Taylor was amazing to watch. She was so good in this role. Um, but I think it's speaking a lot to the writing they did in this episode that my favorite scene was an Octavia Dioza scene. Um, and it was at the end when Octavia chooses to like go under and to save herself and to like keep living. Mm -hmm. Um, and Dioza rescues her and like the way that they just interact is so perfect to me. Like we, we've known from the end of last season that like these two characters, if you get them together, they make magic in a scene. Yeah. Um, and they just, they really do. I loved it. Um, very close second, though. I loved when Murphy and Josephine were interacting at the end because mm -hmm. they just have a really interesting rapport 
because in some ways they they think the same yeah or at least they have that kind of selfishness innate in them murphy has tried to overcome that whereas josephine has not basks in it (laughs) um but i cannot wait to see more of them interacting together yeah same i loved that um what about you my so my favorite scene was also and this is in absolutely no offense to either eliza taylor clark or josephine but it was also the dioza and octavia scene the first one where they're spending their quality time in the crucible um and she tells her to get over it it was honestly so cathartic for me and this is everything I've ever wanted I just wanted a therapy session between Dioza and Octavia and I got it so I feel like the checkbox of things that I needed this season to do is getting pretty full (laughs) um and I love it and I'm so happy so I just like a big giant thank you to the writers and the creators of this show like this is everything I ever wanted and I love it so deeply yeah very much so um but also a mini shout out to the scene where Bellamy discovers that Clark is Josephine. Was there were so many good scenes. <laughs> a good scene. I don't want anybody to misunderstand me when I I loved that scene. I loved so many scenes. I mean, we've been talking for like two hours, but but the, the Dio's and Octavia stuff was just too perfect to pass I up. Also, just have to call out because we didn't talk about it at all. But Murphy's line about like what part of I hate dead people did you not understand? Oh my god, it was so good. I just love him so much. <laughs> and like him, he, they're like pouring over the maps, like him and yeah. Bellamy. I like everything with Murphy and Bellamy. I love. Yeah. Um, but let's move on to the next episode preview. The next episode is six oh six Memento Mori. In this, Mori, maybe? Mori. I think it's Mori. I don't know how to pronounce that. Yeah. In this episode, Dioza learns more about the mysterious children of Gabriel while Abby continues to search for a way to save Cain. So scratch off that last bit, but the first bit, really into learning more about the mysterious children of Gabriel. Same. Very excited for that. Um, we also got the rest of the episode titles for the season, which are not completely confirmed, but a lot of them seem like pretty accurate. Um, I am particularly excited for episodes six or episodes eight through ten. Uh, the Old Man and the Anomaly is episode 8, and hopefully at that point we're going to find out the truth behind Gabriel and Gabriel's backstory, as well as what the hell the Anomaly is. The Swirly Do. The Swirly Do. The Green Swirly Do. Uh, episode 9 is called What You Take With You, which is, I'm assuming, a very clear Star Wars reference where um, uh, Anakin, or not Anakin, Luke. God, Luke, thank you, is going into this cave. He's like on uh, Dag- Dagobah and Yoda and him are like standing outside and he's like going into this cave and Luke is like, what's in there? And Yoda's like, only what you take with you. And then Luke goes into the cave and he sees Darth Vader, but it's really himself. Yeah. Um, and I think this is hopefully going to kind of be an analogy to Octavia and Bloodrena. Maybe this is the episode we'll see Octavia and Bloodrena face off mm-hmm. um, of Octavia, like fighting her darkest self and like, not just fighting her darkest self, but also, like, coming face-to-face with it and, like, accepting it yeah. and choosing to not be that person. And overcoming the fear of being yeah. that person. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then last, of course, uh, episode 10 is called Matryoshka, which is the Russian nesting dolls. And I am really curious if this is about the primes and the primes being inside other people or if this is about the flame and, like, all of the commanders kind of going back in time. Yeah, I have no idea, but I'm so excited about either or both of those possibilities. Yeah, same. Um, one thing that we forgot to talk about, which is that we just got confirmation that season seven of the hundred is 16 episodes, which will bring us to a round 100 episodes. I'm glad you mentioned that. I definitely forgot to talk about that here too. Um, 
I am like, this is like a very bittersweet thing for me because on one hand, I'm like, yes, 16 episodes, can't wait. Like episode or season two was also 16 episodes and season two up until this point at least was I think the strongest season. Um, so I'm very excited, but I also feel pretty confidently that this means that next season is the end of the show. Yes. And I also feel bittersweet about this too, but I think I am a little bit I'm I feel very satisfied with the hundred being the end point yeah. you know like I like the idea of this being a hundred episodes obviously it's called the hundred so like the yeah but also I just don't want this story to get stale I don't want the characters to get stale I like the direction they're going but if we are heading toward a resolution I don't know how much runway we have left yeah and I don't want to like keep stirring up drama just for the sake of stretching it out um, so I would be okay with it ending after seven seasons. And yeah, I know that's is like a little, this, the themes I'm seeing this season of hope and forgiveness and doing better definitely seem like an end point for the show to get to. Like I, I can understand with all of these characters trying to find, um, some way to move on from their past and some forgiveness for what they've done. And they're all trying to do better. Like I, I can see the show ending after next season and it being a very satisfying ending for me yeah um we'll see obviously that's still a long way away yeah we honestly this is complete speculation we have no information other than the number of episodes we get next season but given that they stretched it to 16 episodes specifically so it could be 100 episodes does seem very likely that this is the end yeah and on that note that is our episode. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can. You can email us at skycastcrew at gmail.com. That is S-K-A-I-C-A-S-T-K-R-U at gmail.com. You can also tweet at us at skycast, and you can tweet at us at our own Twitter accounts. I am at bperlman89. And I'm at Sarah R. McCabe. That is our episode. In theory, we should technically be on time for next week's episode. We will be on time for next week's episode. I'm going on tour next week. I may be dead. You're going to have to suck it up. You got to suck it up and get over it, Britt. (laughs) (laughs) So hopefully if everything goes right, we will be on time. Until then, may we meet again. May we meet again. Bye, Bye, guys. guys.